look for the silver lining Whene'er a cloud appears in the blue Remember somewhere the sun is shining So always look for the silver lining And try to find the sunny side of life. Hey, I don't even know your name. And we've been through so much together. Is it important? Whether we win or lose in this game, you ain't gonna be around. I'd like to have a name to remember you by. How do you want me? Dead or alive? If I get a say in it, I don't want either of them. You're a hell of a guy. Huh? Just remember me as Mickey Mouse. Why not? to bring you our feature presentation. This is the Past and the Pending Podcast, the podcast about consuming media in the present as well as the past. I'm your host, as always, Adam Sexton. And for this episode, I've invited a guest that I've wanted on my show for a long time. It's it's a cause for celebration because this guest and his podcast has kept my desire for all things entertainment and pop culture alive and well and running and also has inspired me to start my own podcast. And I've had the honor of guesting on his podcast a handful of times in the past. And now I extend the honor to him. So welcome to the show, host and creator of the podcast Entertainment Landfill, formerly known as Nowhere in Mulberry, Jason Wallstrom, or as I call him, The Jaystrom. How you doing, The Jaystrom? I'm doing fantastic, Adam. What an intro that was. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, I didn't want to overdo it the way that Kevin Smith sometimes does on his podcast, where he sometimes talks for like 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and you just know his guest is being really kind and patient or whatever. But I mean, <laughs> that's the way that Smith records his stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't have minded that, like 10 minutes just building me up, and then it's like... <laughs> And then maybe some music like dun dun, and I'm like, hello, <laughs> and maybe well, a little we're bit gonna, of smoke. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, you and your podcast uh, throughout this episode. So there will be plenty of opportunities to uh, wash your car, as they say. Nice. So uh, I'm hoping you're doing okay today, and uh, I guess uh, for this episode, um, I guess. Starting off, we we should probably talk about uh, your podcast since it's one of the reasons that you're talking to me right now, and uh, then we'll get into the whole what we've been 
watching and then you know any other media consumption stuff and then we'll get to the heavier topics of the conversation so uh uh in in the event that there's uh someone listening to this podcast and doesn't know the show you create uh, uh fill them in on it okay i do a podcast called entertainment landfill it was once called nowhere in mulberry and it's a film uh i mean it's a film it's a a podcast about film, television, and pop culture. Basically what the show is, it's everything that I wish that talk radio was when you're driving in a car in the morning, like drive time radio. This is like the original idea. It's what I wish they talked about instead of politics and sports. Like what if they talked about TV shows and movies and like video games and uh, like uh, latest DVD releases instead of all of the you know, garbage that they talk about that's like reality. Like who wants that, right? <laughs> and it's almost like Entertainment Landfill. It's like this um originally nowhere in Mulberry, I I wanted it to be like a small town radio station. Like maybe driving through a small town, you turn on the local radio and you hear these fools talking about T V shows and stuff. And it was kind of inspired by sports radio and like Howard Stern like I would listen to those as I was younger and while I liked it to a point I liked the format I didn't like what they were talking about necessarily I was like if only they were talking about what I want to hear and that's basically what the podcast became you know yeah exactly um I remember in uh, the previous episode with uh, our uh, our uh, common acquaintance uh, Adam Howard a.k.a. Adam of the Bay Area, that he was also uh, also in kind of a, in kind of, a, of a search for a podcast that would talk about topics that he cared about. Uh, I believe he had a job in which there was a, a radio or an internet radio. Uh, something was playing like, uh, like a, I don't know, if it was like a playlist or it was like playing certain programs at random. And at some point, there was a, uh, like a, 10 minute feed of something from PC gamer. And all of a sudden his antennas went up and it caught his attention. And that was something he wasn't, uh, that he wished that he heard more often. And that kind of led him one way, uh, to, uh, Hollywood saloon and then onto, onto your show. But one of the things I was wanting to ask you is, uh, the process, I mean, you're, you're, uh, podcast started back in 2005. Am I right about that? Yes. Well, um, the process of being able to record, uh, not only record a podcast, but to post it to the internet has to have been a completely different process. I'm, and I'm also kind of wondering if it was, uh, not exactly as easy a process as it is right now. Uh, Adam Howard talked about how he basically had to know a guy who knew like internet code, or maybe maybe there was a service online that allowed you to post audio files onto a site, like a GeoCity site or something. Uh, basically, what can you talk about in terms of the any hoops that you had to jump through to be able to post an episode back then versus now? Yeah, it's funny. When we recorded the first two episodes of uh, the podcast, uh, Nowhere in Mulberry, I had the two files. And I'm like, all right, they're done. 
now what do I do? How do I make it a <laughs> podcast? And I remember reading like, how do you podcast and Googling like, how do you host this? Where do you put it and stuff? And I found a couple of sites and one of them was called audioblog.com. I don't even know if that exists anymore, but I read their little pitch and it was like for $5 a month, you could do this. You upload your files and then you get a feed. That feed is your podcast. You submit that to iTunes. So they pretty much mapped it all out for me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. So I signed up for Audioblog, $5 a month. That's not a big deal. But I didn't realize it was actually, uh, the plan was for $5 per like gigabyte or something like that. Uh-huh. And uh, after, I, I'm trying to think of, it's, you know, it's a long time ago. Maybe after 10 episodes, I got the bill and it was like going to be over $200 for the month. Because, oh, of, wow. because of all the downloads and i was like oh no what do i do i don't understand what's happening you know and then you know i got my wife and she like read the fine print she goes you know uh, i'm sorry honey but this is for like gigabyte it's five dollars like every time somebody downloads when it gets up to a gigabyte you get five dollars you know you're charged five dollars and then on and on i was like oh okay <laughs> and i was like that's not good and so I did some searching and found SwitchPod, another, like, people were starting their little podcast services, like Libsyn. I'm sure you've heard of that, Liberated yes. Syndicate. That was always too expensive for me. I would always pick something that was a little bit cheaper. And I think uh, Lib, uh, SwitchPod was like $10 a month, but you could pay the whole year. And I was like, all right, I'll do that. And uh, I remember back then you had, like, this much. You had maybe, like, a gigabyte per month and you couldn't go over that. And what that mm -hmm. meant was my, you know, I could upload shows as long as those file sizes didn't exceed a gigabyte. I was fine. And usually they didn't, you know, cause they're compressed and it was unlimited bandwidth. And, you know, I used feed burner for my feed. That way I could change it at any time. So, uh, I've actually changed hosts three times. It went from, uh, no, it's maybe four times, actually. <laughs> uh, but now I've been at Podbean for quite quite a while, like a long time. I don't even know, what is it, 2010 or something? So I haven't had to worry about it for a long time. Wow. Yeah, I, uh, I was, I was pr fully prepared to hear about you actually having some kind of background in uh, – uh, some computer skills in order to be able to do that but uh but yeah, yeah I um, like uh i just i'm not smart like that kind of stuff and so i found a site that mapped everything out for me and uh that seems to be good i remember talking to andy sims back in the day when he started the hollywood saloon you know he started roughly around the same time i did and he found us you know he emailed us about we were talking about the film Domino by Tony Scott, and he mm -hmm. was like, you guys are really trashing that film, and it's, it's, I don't think it's, you know, he was kind of defending the film, and it was kind of funny, and he said that he did a film podcast, and so I listened to it, and I thought it was pretty cool, but he started explaining to me how he did things, and he would, like, edit the HTML code and everything for his website, and he would have to fix things that would break in his his RSS feed. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, that's not the way I, I did it the easy way. He was doing it the hard way, which I thought was funny. Yeah. I, I can remember, 
earlier earlier in the history of uh, talking to you guys, and you've brought this up on older episodes of the show, right around the time where you changed over from Nowhere in Mulberry, Mulberry to Entertainment and Landfill, that there was a site or an online service called Blog Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that one of the hosting sites you used? That was like um, an I when we wanted to go live, the first place we went live is T- T- Talk Radio X. It was like okay. a, it was a website that had a live feed, and they would broadcast all their entertainment. Uh, we started out there by just giving them episodes of our finished shows. And Radio Dan, who does uh, you know his live internet radio show, he said, "You guys need to do this show live." And I was like, "I don't know, man. It's like." It's like a lot of stuff I'm kind of balancing here, you know. And he goes, no, 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 you should try it. I think you would like it. So we did like a test show. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we could do this. We could do this. And so we started doing the show live. And it did kind of bring up our energy a bit. And uh, once we left Talk Radio X, because of different reasons, you know, we we didn't like being on at the same time as other people or having... The main thing is we were stuck in a two-hour format, and you've listened to our show enough to know that we run over two hours quite frequently. Yes. And so we would have to just be like, okay, that's the show, everybody, and we'd just be done at two hours. (laughs) I would feel like, wow, there's so much more we could have done there, and I would be pretty annoyed, and we realized we need to go somewhere else. So for a while there, we kind of kept looking for live places to go. For the show, especially free places. <laughs> and I think Blog Talk Radio, we might have tried it once or something. Yeah, I, I, I guess the reason I talk is that sometimes that you've you've talked about it like you had some mishaps or something. But I yeah. mean, recently you've had a mishap. So I believe you use Mixler right now as far as uh, trying to bring the show live when you do episodes on Friday nights. And uh, basically, uh, it cut you off uh, before right. you could end the episode, and I'm sure that's that's frustrating to no end. So, uh, I mean, but you, of course, you were able to salvage it, right? Yeah, basically, the way we do the show is I record everything on my end on a little recorder. I've got a wire going out into it. So no no matter what happens to my computer, because we've done the show before, we've had power outages. And when the power comes back on, I don't have to worry about hitting record again. It's just still recording. Yeah. And uh, then after afterwards, you know, I edit the file. I see that big, long, silent gap. I was like, oh, that's when the power was out. But I can just, like, cut it all out. So well, what happened with Mixler is I pay a certain amount per year to use Mixler to do shows live. But it's for three hours at a time. Steven was considerably late on Friday, and I had already started the f- the feed. So, oh, okay. So, like, when we were, I think it was somewhere around DVDs, I got a little warning and saying, like, you have 15 minutes of live time left. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, what do I do? Do I hurry? Or do I just let the time run out and just apologize later and release the podcast? Like, here's what you missed, guys. You know what I mean? I just, mm-hmm. you know, the show just has to go on. The feed cuts off. And what's funny is Steven was, uh, his friend Jessica listens live. And he started texting her, like, what happened? 
and she was texting him back and his phone kept going bloop, bloop, like that. And I was just like giving Steven death dad. The stink guy. <laughs> yeah, like, are you serious, Steven? Could you not mute your phone? You know, but, you know, stuff like that happens. Oh, man. What's funny is I was pretty uptight back in the early days of the show. Like any little mishap, I would get pretty upset and worked up yeah. about it. And sometimes it would like, ugh, I would just have to like, just take a moment, like just annoyance. And that's one thing you could say about doing podcasting for this long is like, now I'm just like, whatever, just like, keep going. It's no big deal. <laughs> Everything can be fixed in editing if you need it to. And sometimes you don't need to. It's funnier with the mess ups in the show. You know what I mean? I do. I do. And I can remember listening live uh, that there were some times that Skype was not cooperating. Uh, and, and you and it's basically the show is uh, you and Steven right now. And Steven is usually there in person. So you've got two mics set up. But uh, for hosts like, uh, when, especially when Bill was a regular host, you had to depend on Skype. I don't know if you had any other service to depend on back then, and Skype uh, would not always be cooperative. Um, and I can remember listening to some live sessions. There was one in particular where you couldn't get you couldn't get the, you couldn't get. Uh, Skype or some other program to cooperate for almost an hour and a half. Yeah. And it was just me and maybe one or two other people in the live chat going, uh, Oh man, this is, this is the show is in rare form tonight. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes basically in order to do the show, like with bill being on Skype is he needs to hear what I'm playing. He needs to hear voicemail. Uh, he needs to hear clips of some show we're playing or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes Skype is fine. No problem. We can go months at a time. And then sometimes it's like Skype is like, nope, not going to work tonight, guys. I'm not going to let Bill hear anything you're playing. And it can be so annoying because it just dead stops the show, you know. Yeah, it's it's not uh, entertainment landfill or nowhere with, without nowhere in Mulberry without the audio drops is it, it's it's still good but it's not the same <laughs> yeah. because because you're you're one of the few podcasts uh, that I've listened to that actually knows how to put uh, how to use audio drops uh, for both comedic timing and how they may. Uh, relate to whatever the subject matter is. So, yeah, that's that's frustrating to no end. So, the show, uh, like we like I said, we said we established before, uh, started in two thousand and five. It transitioned uh, into entertainment landfill. I believe what was it twenty twelve or twenty twenty eleven? Would you say? I'm gonna s just agree with you. Yes, I can't remember. Okay, man, honestly. <laughs> Okay, well, I started listening to uh, Nowhere in Mulberry in the summer of 2012, I believe. And I think okay. in the fall, I want to say it was like September or October of that year, someone is going to be able to go through the archives and find out if I'm wrong or right. Uh, most likely Adam Howard, since he's been listening to some of those old episodes. Uh, 
and I and I think it was like maybe three or four episodes before you guys were talking about we're gonna switch over to, we're gonna switch the title uh, over, and uh, since that point you you've also had to change the format because sometimes. Uh, Steven's not available or Bill's not available or both. And you, there are also things that you want uh, else to do with the show, such as the Chuck series podcast, Chuck series companion uh, podcast or uh, certain solo shows of uh, certain types. And uh, would, and basically uh, you, you've uh, returned to the old nowhere in Mulberry format, despite the fact the show is still entertainment landfill. Uh, could you walk us through like what, how would you describe the current state of the show and any particular plans for it? Yeah, I've kind of been all over the place since what I think 2014. Uh, Bill was always my crutch on the show. He's someone that I easily had a chemistry with on the show. Steven and I have a chemistry too, but I almost think of Steven as more as my wingman, my sidekick kind of thing. And Bill is kind of like, he's a conversationalist. He can talk on and on, you know? And so we can have a dialogue back and forth the way Steven and I uh, don't. Steven and I communicate, you know, it's kind of hard to explain, you know, it's all chemistry. I think I've kind I've tried to analyze it for quite a while when Bill uh, pretty much left the show and, you know, there would be long gaps. You know, I think it started out where he would do a show like one month and then like six months would go by. He'd come back for a show or something like that. I would have to adjust. How do I do the show without Bill? And I think a lot of those, uh, a lot of this time, you know, I d- did ETL Daily, which was a solo show. Like, I'll mm-hmm. just do the show by myself. And it's a different energy. it's maybe not the same thing that I always wanted to do. It's just like, you know, probably the hardest thing also is that I had a Patreon at the same time with paying patrons who wanted the show, which nobody's ever complained to me. Everybody's been really cool about everything. Like, Hey, whatever you do, whenever you want to do it. But I would be like, well, I got to give these people shows because that's what they're doing. And so I would do like a movie react, you know, we'd go see the new Vin Diesel film and Steven and I would record <laughs> our thoughts on it. Or, you know, uh, we would do a trailer reaction. And uh, I don't think, I think what I would really love to do is just keep doing entertainment landfill and stop doing all the crazy little side shows, the uh, I'd rather react to trailers and react to movies on the main show and stop doing these other shows. I do want to keep doing the Chuck series companion. And I have this idea of doing a book club podcast, but I think that I was doing all those little other shows, some of which I had you on like a trailer react show. It was an idea mm-hmm. Like, hey, I know, react to trailers. That'll be fun. A lot of people do that. But when it comes down to it, while that's fun, I'd rather spend a lot of my time doing the show that, you know, that I've always been doing, which is Entertainment Landfill. 
Yeah. Right. And and I can kind of hear that uh, in the episodes where you're sharing where you've got a guest versus the ones where you've uh, you're doing it solo. Uh, and, and I'm entertained no matter what. But I, it kind of feels like it's it's a uh, say it's a it's an audio commentary with john carpenter if he has kurt russell it's it's a better experience when he has someone to bounce off steven is pretty much your the andy richter to your conan o'brien uh, yeah. so 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 yeah i i understand that and um as far as bill not being on the show I, i'm sure it's something we all miss and we hope he you know comes back to it but i mean you know everyone's got to live their life and whatever so uh but i'm i'm glad that you still try to keep the show running it's it's basically an institution at this point and we don't want you going anywhere and there's you know still plenty of still still plenty of stuff to say and uh your your loyal fans myself included will try to contribute uh whatever we can whether that's a voicemail uh or the the miracle uh scenario where we're able to come in and and uh guest record it's just my problem is uh i work in the evenings monday through friday it's something right. i can't get out of unless i uh schedule like a day off uh so it, i just try to do what i can on my end but uh, i'm i'm glad that you try to keep the show going despite uh, you know you know all all of the complications from life that stops it from being the thing that it was uh and and uh, hopefully it's it's still bringing you happiness in some form so uh yeah. your 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 patrons your regular listeners really do appreciate that this this is one of the I'm going to be one of those guys who goes on a podcast and says this show got me through some tough periods in my life, whether that's just a work week that basically brings you to your knees or you feel like it does. You just go home and there is always uh, there's always this show that, that helps distract you from the fact that your life is a grind. So I really do appreciate that you've been able that, that you've kept the, the momentum up and there are no signs of you slowing down. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's always, I, like I, you know, you know this, that I love feedback. I love when people tell me what they laughed at, what they like about the show, etc. That's what keeps me going. And there will be times when there's none of that. And sometimes it doesn't matter. Like, I can keep myself going. I'm motivated. Like, right now, it's like one of those times where, Okay, enough of this shit. Let me keep let me get the show going. I need to do it weekly. I need to do it often. I need to uh you know, I'm a little rusty on the drops, I'm a little rusty on some of these things, and I need to get my flow back, you know. Mm-hmm. And there'll be times where I'm like, Why am I doing this? I mean, what who does anyone even care? And you know, it's like yeah. oh, it it's like my enthusiasm is waning. Oh no, it's going away. And sometimes I'll get a voicemail or, a, you know, an email and somebody will like, I love your show or whatever. I love it always makes me laugh. And I'm like, oh, God, I got to do the show for this person, you know. Right. Well, my podcast is still very young. I believe this is the 15th episode of it. And uh, and 
I kind of suffered, you know, my show pod faded for two or three years, basically, because uh, one, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with it past a certain point. And also, two, uh, you all you were always generous with your feedback, but I wasn't hearing anything from anyone else. And that can that can be discouraging if you're wanting to continue. Uh, And uh, luckily, there there is, you know. My efforts to start the podcast has attracted some listeners. Uh, I've switched hosting sites that's been able to play the show on other kind of uh, podcast services such as uh, Spotify or or I think it's a show called Radio FM. And I'm trying to keep that momentum going but how many episodes do you estimate that you've uh that you recorded when you started the podcast before you had a steady stream of listeners oh wow uh the first time i ever heard from anyone maybe five episodes maybe there's like one person and it was this lady named Zebertina who I still follow on. I'm friends with on Facebook. She lives in Norway and she was like, I just love your show. And she's still like a fan of the show. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was around episode nine or something, uh, or 10 where we talked about Domino. And then all of a sudden Andy Sims said he listened to the show and him and I started, you know, emailing back and forth about stuff. And that was like the first time I had a real dialogue with somebody. So it was like 10 episodes in, you know, before, and, you know, we would ask for voicemail and those first early voicemails are like people we knew, like, uh, Heather, my wife, she sent a fake voicemail in as a British woman. And I, it's so funny. She's like, hello, nowhere in Mulberry. And Bill goes, who the hell is that? Like, <laughs> it's like, it's my wife. Okay, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but it takes quite a while. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. It seemed like forever, I'm going to say. Yeah, I, I really didn't know that Heather sent any feedback. Uh, <laughs> and I've I, I've asked you in the past, has, I mean, you've you've had your daughter emma on but we haven't really heard much from heather unless of course she can be heard in the background of (laughs) some episodes uh that so her involvement with being the podcast is maybe something that she doesn't want to get involved with but she it sounds like she's been supportive of it as well despite all the headaches it may have caused you Is, is that fair to say she's always been very supportive um Early on, I said, hey, I want you on the podcast. This is like maybe right when we were beginning the podcast. And she said, okay, okay. And I was like, okay, this Friday we're going to be live. No, wait. This Friday we're recording or whatever. We weren't live yet at the time. And she goes, Friday's no good for me. Maybe we could do it on Sunday. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. We got to do it on Friday. And she's just like... No, that's no good for me. And so ever since then, I'm just like not bothering. (laughs) But she says it all the time. She hates her voice. She doesn't want to hear her voice. And some people are like that. They just don't want to hear themselves talk, I guess. I don't know. But I think she would do great. 
there's still sometimes where like, you know, where Steven can't do a show and I'm like, Oh great. What have I been preparing this for? And she's like, do you want me to be on the show with you? And I'm like, sure. Yeah, let's do that. And she's like, I, I was just kidding. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh, well, um, that's pretty much, uh, the, the majority of the questions I had regarding the show. And if it, if something else pops up through the episode, I'll be sure to bring it up with you. But for right now, let's transition into some of the stuff that we have been watching. And traditionally on this show, uh, I usually pick something that I've watched that maybe was made or aired in the past, and then we'll go to something that's more recent. Okay. Uh, so I'll start with my first pick. And it is a Western, a kind of a spaghetti Western. It's, it's, I mean, it's made by the guy who is known for spaghetti Westerns, but, uh, that's not the kind of, uh, not the kind of movie that it is. It is a film from 1971 called Duck You Sucker oh, made yeah. by Sergio Leone. Have you seen this? I have seen quite a bit of it. I'm not sure I've seen the whole thing. My dad had the album to Duck You Sucker, and mm-hmm. I, sometimes it would be laying there in front in our living room, and I would see the, this uh, this image of James Coburn, right? Yeah. Who's in, with his jacket open, <clears throat> with all of this dynamite and explosives in his jacket. Yeah. And I'd be like, what is this movie, Duck <laughs> You Sucker? And it has fantastic music. Yeah, and uh, you know I can still I I immediately recall it that um, what what <laughs> that <laughs> but I don't remember a lot of the film itself but I do remember the music highly memorable. Well, it played on or it's been playing on uh, I believe the Stars Encore Western channel, which uh, I I watched through my uh, cable subscription, and it's a movie that I I recorded it off of TCM once, and I had trouble trying to make it through, because it seems like the movie really tests you, and it's like first 10, 15 minutes, because you've got this weird prologue uh, where it introduces you to the Rod Steiger character who is hamming it up to an extreme level playing a Mexican bandit who whose gang is comprised entirely of probably his father and a bunch of illegitimate sons and he gets into this coach with these uh, aristocratic people who are all eating and you've got these close-ups of them masticating and it's really yes, I, I get the intention is to try and to it's you've got some class warfare or class critique going on in this film about uh, the Mexican Revolution, but it just seems like the it's not a very subtle film, right. especially in times like this, and it's grossing me out. It's really discouraging me from uh, one to watch, and then basically the prologue ends with uh steiger basically raping the like the sole woman of the of the group of aristocrats after they rob him or whatever and so ultimately it's like this is the character i'm going to be following for the next two two and a half hours i don't think so and then coburn shows up and 
I can kind of get behind behind him, uh, uh, despite the fact that his character's uh, backstory is kind of hinted at or obscured for a good portion of the movie. So when I watched this on on uh, Stars or Encore a couple of weeks back, it was uh, like a good thirty minutes in when they're starting their a uh, little adventure in which they hook up with some uh, revolutionaries or some kind of rebel army and uh, it all starts with a bank robbery that turns out to be something else and so I could finally see what the rest of this movie was about and I think it's it's kind of an easier watch and for the remainder of it where where the it's it's one of the most uh, outwardly political films that Sergio Leone did. Uh, I mean, he's he's an Italian director, and the, the Italian Italian directors of that time were kind of rethinking what they how they were one to talk about or, or express their feelings about political revolutions in their films, uh, considering their history during World War II. And so, it's an interesting little movie, but I don't think that it's as well put together as uh leone's other other films uh and i don't know a lot of that may have to do with just the bizarre performance by rod steiger i i don't know but uh but i finally watched the rest of it you've got an enemy who looks very much like uh, a nazi and (laughs) basically the 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 enemies of this movie are pretty much like nazis uh, or they're just basically Mexican soldiers dressed up that way to kind of <laughs> give you the, these are the good guys they're wearing the black hats these are the white guys they're wearing the white hats so it's it's kind of haphazardly made or something I, I get the feeling maybe Leone Leone's heart wasn't in it uh, as much as compared to his other films so uh, I don't know have you ever been able to watch I mean you said you've watched parts of it but never the full thing yeah i've never seen the full thing it's been like this obscure movie that's kind of been in the back of my brain like i've i a lot of old films that i know exist it's merely because my dad had the album and i would see a cover and it would be very peculiar like what the hell is this (laughs) and it just looks so interesting and uh but that particular Leone film, I've not seen the whole thing. I've watched bits of it on TV from time to time, and yeah. I'll kind of laugh. And it's so funny. The Ennio Morricone music, it's like a personality on it on, on its own, which it is yeah. in a lot of Leone films. And you th- think that, like, what would this film be without this music, you know? It would be kind of uh, intolerable, I would think. <laughs> Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Leone was a gifted director, and there were, I mean, there are moments in his movies where uh, he and Morricone knew that they didn't need to place music at all. Sometimes yeah. there would just be ambiance or something. Very slow paced. Very slow paced and drawing of things out. And when Leone's, I mean, when uh, Ennio Morricone's music is in the background, it really helps those scenes kind of play out. You know, there's no rush. Right. So, uh, 
I can't say that I wholeheartedly recommend Duck You Sucker should you be able to come across it, but if it's like the one Leone film that you haven't seen and you kind of feel like you need to have your knowledge complete, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say don't watch it, but it's not going to blow you away like the Dollars Trilogy or Once Upon a Time in the West or Once Upon a Time in America. So that's my pick for the past. Do you have a pick for the past or or as close to you're gonna laugh when i say this it's just because uh recently you know sometimes you go down a rabbit hole on youtube Mm -hmm. if you think of any old film you like be it blade runner or whatever and you type in uh you know you do a search on youtube of analysis you'll get all these people who have uploaded their ideas of what they think the movie's about and recently I did that, and I don't even know why I did, but with The Road Warrior. And it makes you want to rewatch the film. And I've seen The Road Warrior, I'm going to say hundreds of times. I can mm-hmm. quote the whole damn movie. You know, I, I have to talk. I, I say the lines out loud as I watch it. It's impossible not to. Know. <laughs> it's just like it's memorized. And uh, I'm still fascinated by The Road Warrior. I love the film so much. It's one of my favorite films of all time. I do think that Fury Road, what it has on The Road Warrior now, is speed of the cars that they don't... (laughs) Nothing was wrong with The Road Warrior before, but now that I've seen Fury Road several times, when I go back and watch The Road Warrior, it looks like they're driving about 20 miles an hour. Especially that last chase. I'm like, how slow are they going right now? It just feels like, and some, you know, they do the under cranking where they play it at normal speed and it seems like they're faster. Uh, They're guilty of that several times, but I don't mind. I've seen the film enough times, but I mean, what is there to say about the road wire? It just, uh, I, I'm fascinated by the world building of that franchise just this world they've created. And uh, I'm fascinated by Mel Gibson's performance, how little he does, you know, how little dialogue he has in the film, but how it's all conveyed, like his actions, his body movements, his facial expressions. It's just brilliant, you know? That's a movie I think I could still watch another hundred times over the years. Yeah, and Fury Road's been out for like three or four three or four years and a lot of people basically consider it to be the best action movie ever made uh, I, I would be among those people but I still when trying to choose between that and Road Warrior it, it can be a hard choice to make because Road Warrior's got the lower budget and it's got people it's got people make trying to make smart decisions with the resources that they've got and you know fury road also uses that under cranking technique technique where you can see cars are moving or people are moving faster than they usually would yeah and i i think what road warrior has that fury road doesn't exactly is this sense of melancholy especially if you were familiar with the first mad max film uh where you you can like you said 
uh, Gibson's performance as Max doesn't really spell anything out, but it's all in his uh, his facial expressions, his body language, where losing his wife and child and losing everything that he had basically uh, is implied and informs all of his actions. And it, it's when the film is over you realize that, that you have you've had a narrator t- talking about it so it's not only melancholic for what's happened to the max character it's melancholic for the tribe for yeah. that that the feral kid was a part of and what they've lost the i mean they these people get to safety and they get away from the clutches of uh of uh what's what's his name Lord Humongous. Lord Humongous, but the cost is rather great. Yeah. And uh, so th- there is a sense of melancholy. And I love the music score of Road Warrior, where it isn't. Where, where it's it, it just feels like it's very classy. There is a Morricone like quality to some of those some of those tracks, mm-hmm. especially like the way it begins and the way it ends. Yeah, it could be a silent film with just a music soundtrack, and it still works. And one of my favorite moments in the film that, you know, if you were to ask me when I was younger, my favorite moments were Max is in the V8 and he hits the blower and stuff. But now one of my favorite films is when Papa Gallo comes to Max and he goes, we want you to drive the truck. And he's like, nope, got all I need here. You know, all this gasoline. And he's mm-hmm. like, you know, we had a contract. I honored it. He goes, we'll make a new contract, Max. And he kind of says, uh, what's the problem? Kill one man too many? Lose some family? Oh, that's it. You lost your family. And he's just like, kind of like, we've all been through it here, Max. Like, every single yeah. one of us have lost people. You're no different than any of us. And Max has this moment of kind of selfishness there, you know? He's like, yeah. I got what I need, gas, I'm going to get out of here. And immediately just totally gets screwed. His whole plan, everything, his selfishness. And then there's the moment where he says... He needs to drive the truck. And he's like, look at you, Max, you're a mess. (laughs) You know, and he's like, I'm the only chance you've got. And the part that I still kind of question in the whole film is, why did they bother filling that tanker with dirt? I'm like, how long did that take? I mean, it could have been empty. Nobody would have been the wiser. (laughs) Like, filling it with dirt would have taken days, right? Yeah. So I know it's for the visual at the end is really cool with the sand pouring out of it. But if you think about it, it's like, that's what a, just, that's a huge job there, you know? But I mean, what is it? I love like the comic relief of the gyro captain. Mm-hmm. I love, you know, just the feral kid. I love, you know, when Max, one of my favorite moments is when he stands out of the, you know, the rig and then he shoots through the windshield, shoots the guy through the windshield. And the yeah. kid's like, ha, 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 you know, just like so <laughs> amused by this death and carnage. It's fantastic. That whole film and the way that uh, the climax, you know, with uh, Wes and then uh, Humongous running into it. Oh, man, it's fantastic. Such a great yeah. film. Yeah, I, I love that movie, and uh, you sent me a link, uh, which is probably the one of the things that inspired you to rewatch it. Of, uh, I, I believe it was a YouTube video where he's talking about uh, what was it like certain visual things you may have missed in uh, the Road Warrior, yeah. and and 
that that would have de- I mean I didn't watch it immediately after but that would have uh that would have inspired me to to revisit the real warrior definitely. Well I love what he said about like the seven sisters oil and how they referred to Yeah. I never knew anything like that. Mm. And you know I wrote a thing a while back when I was watching the road warrior that I noticed when Max first retrieves the rig for them and he shows he you know, there's a little bit of action there. They kill some guys or whatever, but he's got the rig for them. So he's like their savior. And they're all like, you know, we were wrong about you. And they give him some shotgun shells. And, you know, mm-hmm. he's kind of walking and he's kind of got this confident walk and his dog's right alongside him. You see the feral kid behind Max and he's kind of mimicking Max's footsteps. Yeah. He's walking in the same way he is. He's trying to match him. And it immediately made me think of Mad Max and I watched that film, you know, many times also. Yeah. There's a part where Max is laying with his wife and they're kind of talking. And, you know, the dialogue isn't great in Mad Max. It's mostly pecu- peculiar, you know. It's a very strange movie. Right. But he's, like, talking about when he was younger and he used to go on long walks with his dad. And his dad wore brown shoes and uh, he would try to matched the stride of his dad as he walked because he was very tall and he had a long stride and he's always he wanted to be like his father and uh he wanted his father to know how proud he was of being his son it was kind of like a neat moment and it was all about matching his father's stride as he was walking so here it was in the road warrior there's the feral kid he's trying to match the stride of mad max and I knew it meant something. That was like yeah. George Miller, you know, that George Miller probably wrote that about his own dad. You know, he was really saying something about his own father or something. Yeah. I just thought it was a neat moment that I had never noticed no matter how many times I'd seen the film until like recently, you know, and that's what, yeah. that's a marking as of a great film where you don't even, you know, you can watch like a hundred times and then you find something new. Yeah, I had that exact same moment when I was fortunate last year to see Die Hard on the big screen. And uh, I took notice of the way of the architecture of the Nakatomi building, the way it's designed, the way that triangles are very prominent in its uh, exterior as well as interior design, like the way the McLean walks into the lobby and he's dwarfed by the architecture inside and uh it's like the movies kind of trying to strip him of power symbolically before it does it to him literally Mm -hmm. and those are things that uh, i didn't pay attention to before and that's a movie i watch once every year so uh, i i love it when movies are made with that much care and that much detail that it's impossible to get to to know all of its secrets right uh, even if you watch it like hundreds of times, you know, and speaking of, you know, Fury Road, that's a film I have not watched as many times. You know, I haven't seen it a hundred times or anything. And that's a film when I first saw it in the theater, I kind of struggled with. Of course, I enjoyed the film, but I didn't fall in love with it immediately. And I've kind of talked about this on the show with Steven that it took me watching it with closed captioning on and understanding exactly what everyone's saying Hmm. to really get it all. Yeah. 
And sometimes that happens. And I've really learned to love the film even more now. You know, it. I had to adjust to Tom Hardy being Mad Max. And I've even watched it with my wife, who I never thought would want to watch it. And she enjoys it now. Yeah, did, did the absence... I mean, some people have talked about what have, would that movie... I mean, is... is I've heard some people say the one thing that keeps that movie back is that Gibson didn't return for Max. No one's saying that Tom Hardy's bad in it, but uh, would have Gibson's appearance or involvement have made that movie all the more special? And I, I mean, I guess we'll never know. Gibson lost interest in doing it reportedly back in the early aughts. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't. You wouldn't want him to do a movie like this if his heart wasn't well, in it. Probably after Beyond but, Thunderdome, he's like, "What more do we have to say? We barely had anything to say in this film." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I, I really wondered how. Uh, and, and, you know, and Gibson has had a problematic past, yeah. but uh, I, no, I think I don't. I don't miss him in Fury Road. I just had to adjust to. Tom Hardy's performance because mm-hmm. it's almost like I know who Max is and I know what he acts like. So if Tom Hardy doesn't act the same way, his reactions, etc., I kind of like that's not Max in my head. Do you know what I mean? Okay. It's like right. I know the character that well. I feel like I do. But I've I know that it's a different actor playing him and I've adjusted and uh I like the film very much, and I like uh, I love Charlize Theron's character. Is it going to be? A, maybe there's something about the age I was when I saw The Road Warrior. I don't know if I will ever like any films as much, or love as many films as much as I did when I was younger. You know how you mm-hmm. grow up with them. Like I see films now, and I'm like, great movie, but I don't know if I'm going to watch it a hundred times. <laughs> you know. Right. I don't know if there's enough time to. And <laughs> uh, we'll just uh, we'll, we're very surprised about. I think we 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 are we can all surprise ourselves with the things that we are willing to make time for if if uh, yeah. if they matter that much. So I, I, I don't know. But yeah, like I said, I watch Die Hard once every year. I always feel like I'm in danger of making it too familiar. Like with something like, say, Pulp Fiction, I had to take a three to four year break right. because I watched it way too many times. Uh, you know, so I, 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 I just it, never like, want that to happen to certain films that I like. I fear that with Aliens, Adam. I've seen the film too <laughs> many times. I don't know if I can watch Aliens anymore. I've seen it too many times. It's kind of weird. I ruined it. Uh, I, I can still go back to it. I, 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 I can sit it's, and watch it's comfort you. food. It's something I can play. It's something I can play in the background and have done. Look where your team is, Gorman. They're right under the primary heat exchangers. So? <laughs> Love Gorman. Gorman goes up there with the mayor of Amityville in Jaws, doesn't he? Most inept. Yes. <laughs> We need to do I that sometime. It. Top 10 most inept characters. Mm-hmm. That's a perfectly good idea. <laughs> All right. So uh, do uh, assuming that we have nothing further to say about Road Warrior at this time, we'll move on to our present picks. And um, 
these are I'm assuming one of these uh one of these uh, movies we've both seen recently. Mm-hmm. So, uh I guess um I get I've got like two choices here. One of them I know you you watched recently and I made a I made an effort last night to watch it before I went to bed. Uh so but really between <laughs> the two, I've got to be honest, the recent release that I've been wanting to talk about the most is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. So we'll get into that, and we're going to do a spoiler-free section, and then we're going to do a spoiler-heavy because it's basically impossible to really express how we feel without talking about what happens in that third act. Now, if <laughs> you have, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie yet but maybe you've seen trailers or tv spots most of the footage that they show you occurs in i would say like the first half of the movie and you're not really seeing anything spoilerific this is one of uh once upon a time in america is a movie that for the for the good part of its running time feels like the lowest stakes plot that Tarantino has ever written. Like it's on a level <laughs> with say smoking and the bandit or dazed and confused where you're watching a hangout movie. You're not watching something where uh, there's anything of any urgency, at least not until like the halfway point. Yeah. Dare I say uh, aimless plot? <laughs> aimless. Well, aimless, but not, not, uh, you know, it's going somewhere. It, it's going somewhere, but it's, it's living in the moment. It, right. it, it is, you know, to, to to call Tarantino indulgent is basically the call water wet, <laughs> but but he loves this time that he's recreating. He loves these characters and especially the ones that are fictional. So mm-hmm. I think there is purpose to it, even when it seems like it's aimless. He's got to set the tone and these people and this place before he decides to uh, you know throw them into the ringer but I, I you know the looming threat is eventually how members of the manson family get involved but what right. is really pressing we discover in the plot is basically a changing of the guard at least in a pop culture sense and of a relationship between two guys that is moving on to like the next phase or so. And that to me, I think feels more important to Tarantino than the involvement with the Manson family, even though that's done with uh, care. Now, when the movie was first announced, when basically all that we knew about the film is that the Manson family was getting involved and Sharon Tate was getting involved. I was not exactly thrilled or something. I mean, the hateful eight, I don't think it's a bad, badly made film at all, but it's so bleak and so uncompromising about human beings capability for cruelty that it's not a movie. I want to revisit anytime soon. Yeah. And I guess that didn't, bode well for me one to watch a movie that involved the Manson family or Sharon Tate like are we going to get uh, uh, a uh, his interpretation of that did yes. you feel the same way yeah when I first heard about it I was like oh Jesus that's like the last thing I want to watch <laughs> like I don't care what's funny is like 
there's like this power about the the kind of vileness and the kind of ickiness of Manson and his flock, the Manson family. Mm-hmm. And what I love about this film is it takes all that power away. But yeah. when you're done watching this movie, he's basically taken all the power away from any kind of lore about the Manson family. Like there's no kind of like uh there's no kind of like ominousness there's a it's just a bunch of freaking morons is the way i felt about it yeah and i love that he depowers them demystifies them demystifies that's a better way of putting it demystifies it all and i love that and i had no idea that was going to happen and what's funny is my wife didn't want to see it because she's like, I don't want to see Charles Manson stuff. That's creepy. It'll give me nightmares. <laughs> like he's in the movie for such a short amount of time and barely registers, you know? Yeah. We know who he is when we see him, but he, that the movie's not about him at all. No. And that's what's so funny about these early trade stories. Like, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino, he's gearing up a big Manson epic. Now, I swear they use that term Manson epic. Yes. Yep. And uh, it's funny, Drew McQueenie recently, he was tweeting about uh, <laughs> different, um, I think it was Cinefantastique, this old movie magazine. And right. he was laughing at some of the things. And one of them was for Explorers, Joe Dante's new movie about two alien teenagers who steal their dad's ship. And <laughs> he's like, wow, they pretty much gave away the entire reveal in the film in the trades. Isn't that hilarious? Oh, it's, it's, that's like, awesome. It's that's what it is. The trades are just announcing projects and sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it completely wrong. And maybe Quentin Tarantino laughs at that. He's like, Oh, you don't know what my movie's about, you know. He has to have known and I am impressed that he kept the plot under wraps for as long as he did. And yeah. uh when you know, when, when it when it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival uh, you know, he basically urged or begged or pleaded with the uh, the critics who went there, do not spoil, especially the third act of this, thank this God movie. They didn't. I'm so glad I didn't know it. Yeah. And, uh, and there were a- I, I, I went on Reddit to see if anyone had any. I mean, there were there were threads about here's what my you know speculation is how that third act is going to transpire we I, I knew from some of the reviews that i read that there was some revisionist history that occurs in the third act but no one no one would say what it was some people uh some people made their own opinions like some people thought that either sharon tate and her uh her friends would still get murdered and the rick dalton and cliff booth character would avenge them or uh <laughs> or uh cliff booth and rick dalton would see them in the act of breaking into sharon tate's house and they would get in the fight some people even speculated that bruce lee was going to get involved <laughs> that in that so you'd have a fight scene with bruce him lee. it is amazing how so many people found so many uh so many ways to figure out how this could possibly play out yeah but there's the way that it does play out and there's no way you could have predicted it was going to no I'm glad I didn't know anything, and uh, but I was dreading it at the same oh, time. Well, so as as much like- as as uh, this movie makes me feel 
so good for so long, but yes. then it hits you with these guys. And like you said, you don't – it demystifies them to the point they're they're just a bunch of idiots – but the, even stupid people are capable of horrible things. You right. and I basically know that when from you, reality. There's a, a moment, and I won't spoil anything at this point, but when you see the car driving up and mm-hmm. you know they're in there, and I was like, oh, here we go. Okay, I don't think I'm prepared for this. You know, <laughs> And it's like, I don't want to watch this. What's going to happen? Because the film, it depicts Sharon Tate from afar. We're not really involved in her life very much. We see her living her life, and occasionally it'll cut to her in her home and stuff, but she's like a very happy person, living a pretty carefree life, enjoying her moment in a film uh, that she's in. Uh, That was a great moment. By the way, I'm like, yes, Quentin Tarantino loves women's feet. Uh, He proves it in this film. (laughs) But uh, I, you know, I saw one. It was like a big deal at Cannes, I think. What Didn't someone say, well, Margot Robbie barely has any dialogue in this film. Can you explain that? And it was just like, well, that's the way her character's depicted. It wasn't like a statement on Margot Robbie's acting ability or anything. Right. And Yeah, I, I, my, I mean, and Tarantino had a curt response to it that some people thought was insensitive. But, I mean, Drew McWeeny once said that he... He expressed opinion on one of Tarantino's films, and Tarantino gave him a response that was pretty much the same, where Tarantino said something like, I reject your hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think that a person, that a uh, character or an a- or actor's performance, uh, their value is not uh, related to how much dialogue they've yeah, got, I or mean, even just, screen time. We're just talking you know, about Hannibal, Mad Hannibal Max. Lecter. <laughs> Is one of the biggest actor is one of the is one of the main characters of say Signs of the Lambs. Yeah. He's in the movie for like maybe sixteen minutes. Yeah, well, I was the, just like the road where can you imagine Mel Gibson saying, "Hey, I need more dialogue here." What am I, what am I working <laughs> Luckily, here? he was the diva back then, so he wouldn't think to ask for that. <laughs> but uh, the thing about Roby's portrayal of Sharon Tate. Um, I, I it really it, there were two things that the movie needed to pull off in order for it to work. We mentioned one of them where it demystifies the Manson cult. Where we're tired of seeing the way that the movie treats these idiots. Some people would even treat them as like anti-heroes or something, but really they're just a bunch of morons who are in the early stages of wanting to start like a race war. The thing it does for for Sharon Tate is that by basically given her glimpses in just her daily day-to-day life is that it humanizes her in a way that we're not expected mm-hmm. that, 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 I mean, it was, it was just a, a quality that I, that I didn't expect from Tarantino, but he pulled it off brilliantly. And that moment in the theater, when she goes to see the wrecking crew, which is a movie she did with Dean Martin and, uh, does a really good job of trying to get herself into the theater without paying for a ticket. (laughs) And then her idea of being incognito is just putting on some big glasses and sitting in that theater and watching to people's reactions of it. And, she plays it so well, like, you know, the way she laughs, the way she giggles, but the way that 
she's making people laugh. She's uh, not only she's on that other end of the of the equation in terms of performing for the masses. Where you love when you show? realize when you realize you are able to contribute to someone else's joy, that's yeah. That's one of the that's one of the reasons I was bringing up your involvement with your your podcast like the lack of feedback but when you know that you can touch someone in some way personally with the thing that you create Mm -hmm. that's that's a joy that you can barely describe and it's pulled off beautifully yeah i love her reacting to people reacting to her and i love the little flash of being trained by bruce lee (laughs) yeah she's acting out some of the 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 fight scenes in that screening room yeah what's so funny is like all of a sudden the way the movie begins you know it's with uh rick dalton played by leonardo dicaprio and he's on the set of his film bounty law it's like this Mm -hmm. old western and his uh stunt double is cliff booth played by brad pitt and they they're they've been friends for a long time and there's a moment where uh, basically Leonardo DiCaprio, I believe he's telling Al Pacino, he's like, well, you know, uh, Cliff, he's my driver. And it says, and all of a sudden you hear, uh, <laughs> you hear <laughs> Russell, like all of a sudden he goes, that's a load of bullshit. The reason he doesn't drive is because he's been pulled over for drunk driving way too many times. And it's uh. funny. It's like, whoa, what the hell just happened? You know? And that's the way the film is. All of a sudden, it'll interrupt to correct something or tell you something, a little tidbit. And it's really funny. And can I just say how much I love Rick Dalton by the end of this movie? And I love Cliff Booth, too, but they both have their strengths, you know? And my, my favorite is just Rick Dalton. What's funny is when they show his acting, he's not a bad actor. He's not a buffoon or anything. He just has no confidence in himself at all, you know, and I love him. uh, The fact that he will kind of start crying, thinking about his career being over. Right. And I love the moment where this is later on, but he's basically cursing at himself for messing up and not remembering his lines. And he's like, don't take another drink. Quit drinking right now. Just stop drinking. Get your shit together. And then he's like, okay, okay. And then he grabs his flask, he opens up, and he takes a drink, and he's like, oh, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, I, I I love DiCaprio's performance. It's the funniest he's ever been since, like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. But he's one of those actors like Ryan Gosling. You just wish he was in comedies more often because his yeah. timing is perfect. Yes, but uh, but uh, as far as Brad Pitt's character, uh, I also love it. Uh, he's and, you know he's uh, in a movie that where there is a Steve McQueen, he's as cool as Steve McQueen, or basically even cooler. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Steve McQueen, that's the one. I don't know how you felt, but that's the one instance of casting that didn't quite work for me. I think Damian Lewis is a good actor, but there's something about that wig. That yeah. just makes it look like a wig, and well, that I'm I not seeing. I, I mean, hair. I can see Sharon Tate and Margot Robbie, and uh, or Jason Bring and Emily Hirsch, but uh, but not McQueen and Damian Lewis. <laughs> yeah, I just mostly laughed at it because I know it's, <laughs> I know who it is. Oh, that's Damian Lewis. 
And I yeah. didn't take any more of that. And, you know, I thought it was funny at labels. It tells you who they are as they're staying there. Right. There's no way we would, have, we would have known that was Steve McQueen had it not told us. Right. But, uh, but no, I, I, I love the whole cast. I love uh, Timothy Oliphant as the uh the actor of the TV series that where Rick Dalton is doing his uh villain performance and uh, it, mm-hmm. you kind of you, you know you, he, he's talking to DiCaprio and he's basically got that you know everyday kind of voice but he gets in the character and I kind of see like Raylan Givens kind of uh <laughs> pop out in his performance but uh we got to see Luke Perry again and Perry's he, he's not in the movie for very long but I, I right. think he strikes a good good impression yeah it was uh, good to see for him. what is basically his last film performance yeah I was like oh it's good to see you Luke one last time and uh there was a lot of little kind of one-off type of performance you see Michael Madsen there for a moment mm-hmm. uh you know Al Pacino he goes to meet Rick Dalton because he wants to recruit him to go do some spaghetti westerns. Yeah. And I love, he's like, I just watched two of your films in my screening room. And one of the films was like a Nazi film where he's killing Nazis. And it was so funny. Yeah. You know, like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio with an eye patch and a flamethrower and he's hiding (laughs) kind of like in the curtains. And you see the Nazis are like, yes, and that's how we invade America or something like that. I forget what I'm saying. But he's like, you know, I roast you Nazi bastards. And he's just like, you know, lighting them all on fire. And he's like, ah, ha, ha, ha. And, you know, Al Pacino's like, oh, it was a wonderful film. What was it like working with a flamethrower? And he goes, oh, yeah, that was quite a thing. You know, I had to do lessons. And it cuts to him. He's training. And he goes, it's so hot. Is there a way for it not to be so hot? And the guy goes, well, it's a flamethrower. So, no. that got one of the biggest laughs of the <laughs> the crowd that I saw it with when he goes, can we do something about that? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, no. <laughs> that was very funny. Oh my gosh. Uh, but yeah, a, a lot of, a lot of great one-offs like uh, Zoe Bell showing up as Kurt Russell's uh, stunt yes. coordinator wife. The scene and, with Bruce uh, Lee and uh, Cliff, Brad Pitt, mm-hmm was fantastic because you know i don't know a lot about bruce lee but he was depicted as kind of being very cocky and talking about himself and how he could beat cassius clay in a fight he was like you know cassius clay would be in a wheelchair the rest of his life if i fought him and uh cliff kind of smirks at that and he goes do you think something's funny he's like like, if you think you could beat cassius clay you're really fooling yourself he's like oh why don't you put your money where your mouth is or something like that and they're gonna fight and that scene is really funny yeah uh, i've been reading a a biography on bruce lee it's called bruce lee alive by matthew polly bruce lee uh was a was a lot of was a lot of things but his capacity for being hot-headed that was definitely something that was reportedly true Mm -hmm. so i think tarantino got that part but i mean bruce lee is also trying to make a career in hollywood where they look at a chinese american guy and they just don't know what to do with him so his resentment towards the status quo is also contained in that performance and uh 
I think they nailed it. I don't think it was insensitive. Some people expressed some trepidation up to the film's release because they saw the scenes from the trailer and they were thinking, you're trying to tell us that this one white guy would be able to take on Bruce Lee or whatever. But people forget at that particular point, I don't know if Bruce Lee had developed Jeet Kune Do, his own martial arts style, but he was a guy who was still – uh, learning as not only a martial artist, but as a person, he was still growing and maturing well, and it so. makes him very human. So I don't think it's an insensitive uh, portrayal at all. I yeah, thought it well, was it very, a, very honorable. When you see the film, it's not a knock, knock down drag out fight. Like they're angry at each other. It's like no. a challenge. And Bruce Lee even says no hitting in the face. Cause he's an actor. <laughs> he's in the film. And what's funny is that it's, the whole thing is basically a setup for the punchline, which mm-hmm. is it's the wife's car the whole time. Yeah. Like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to get Brad Pitt hired on the set. And Kurt Russell's like, I can't hire him. My wife can't stand him. And there's a whole backstory because of that, you know? Yeah. And so he basically guilts him in. He's like, all right, I'll hire you, but stay clear of my wife wide birth <laughs> and he's like okay so it cuts to him and he's hanging out there and he's listening to bruce lee kind of like just talk on and on and finally they get into the skirmish and then the wife shows up and punchline right yeah and i thought it was set up beautifully yeah and it was and, huge it, laughs in the theater oh yeah so um but yeah, I, I I love the way they handled uh, how how a scene in a western would be shot, where where the first time that Dalton screws up his lines with the Oliphant character, you have that little camera move that rotates around Oliphant, <laughs> and when DiCaprio screws up, oh, okay, let's go back, and then the camera rotates back the other way without around Oliphant, and then it resumes. Uh, I, I basically loved how they portrayed, uh, you know, uh, having the shoot another take, and uh, yeah. I thought that was done beautifully. I love when the director comes in. He's like, "Rick Dalton, oh, I love you," and he's like, "We're gonna <laughs> give you a handlebar mustache. We're gonna give you like, a, you know, a hippie jacket with lots of tassels and long <laughs> hair." And he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! How are you gonna see it's me?" And he's like, "We don't want to see it's you. We just want to see the actor." And he's like, oh, oh, okay. And I love that when he's performing, there's a part where he keeps forgetting his lines. He's just like, I'm shit. Forget this. This isn't working. Just come on, tear it all down or whatever. And the director's like, no, 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 you're doing great. Come on, let's just do it again. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you, that probably happens on sets all the time, right? Yeah, most likely. And with someone like him who is lacking in confidence and is wanting to do a good job, but he knows he's just getting yet another part that kind of yeah. pushes him to the background. So and that's the thing that Al Pacino says. He goes, I notice all you're playing is guest stints on TV shows where you play the bad guy. Good mm-hmm. guy kills you. What does that tell the audience? Like, this is the guy you- from Bounty Law. <laughs> And you yeah, just, who's going to kill you next? Yeah, and he just got his ass kicked by this new star. This is the new guy. So he's like, oh, shit. And he like starts crying, and Brad mm-hmm. Pitt's like, hey, hey, it's okay. <laughs> he's always like, there to, like, <laughs> it's going to be all right. And that's what's funny is when he realizes that uh, Roman Polanski and his wife live next to him, and he's like, oh, wow. What if the, you know we're at a party or something? And he's like, hey, I like your work. 
And, you know, he starts feeling better about himself for a bit. So it's like yeah, he the, gets down on himself, then he feels better about himself. The, the the prospect of ingratiating himself with his neighbors is what gives him a little, <laughs> yeah. uh, little jump in his stride. I got to say that there was a moment in the film where Brad Pitt comes over. And, you know, he's like, hey, we're going to watch you on FBI, this TV show. Mm-hmm. And they get a pizza and, you know, they're getting drunk and they're just watching him on the TV and yeah. they're kind of commenting. I wish we could have seen the whole episode of him. Doing yes. It. Yes. It's it a commentary like, track. I love it. Yeah. It was like their commentary track. And I love that bit. I would, that could yeah. have gone on forever. I wouldn't have minded it at all. No, it gotta be honest. I'm going to see this again next weekend, probably another two <laughs> times or something. I, I, I just, I just love the feeling that this, the whole movie gives me. Me too. But um, let's uh, transition from the spoiler-free territory into the more spoiler-heavy uh, territory, and which we've, uh, re- uh, which we've basically kept to like the third act of the movie so far. Um, yeah. And I will, in the episode description for anyone listening, I will do the timestamp for that spoiler-heavy part. And so you, we can give you – so you can skip over that or give you some time to, uh, to to see the movie since it just recently came out. And um, I really like that it's a matter of uh, circumstance that they walk they, – they, they, it may. I, I'm not particularly sure if they know which house to go into, but the fact that Dalton gets on their ass, it inspires that them scene. to go into his house instead. Well, I love. I think it's so fantastic. Like uh, Rick and Cliff have just arrived from Europe, right? For he's mm. been there for what six months filming spaghetti westerns. He's come yeah. back and now he's married. He met this. A woman who he's now, I think it's the director's daughter, I think it might be, if I caught that. She had the same last name as the director, maybe. I think Uh, so. Might have to see it again. But So they come home, and he's jet-lagged, but he wants to drink, and he's making some margaritas. And meanwhile, uh, Cliff is like, hey, I'm going to smoke this cigarette laced with LSD that I've had in your in your living room for like months. <laughs> oh, it's it. Yeah. He's had it for like, since, since they left for Italy. So it's been like, yeah, like six months or so. Yeah. And he's taking Brandy, his lovely dog for a walk. They set this up that he has a great rapport with his dog. Basically yeah. when Cliff drops off Rick, he goes home to his trailer behind mm-hmm. a drive in. And all he has is this, uh, pit bull named Brandy that is, uh, I'm guessing the love of his life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. that's a well-trained dog. Yeah. Extremely well-trained. The dog doesn't move until he goes, and then he, <laughs> and he, so he decides to go for a walk, smoking an LSD like cigarette while, uh, Rick is making this margaritas. And I love, he hears like all this racket, like the car <laughs> that the hippies are driving is so loud. It needs a new muffler and smokes come out of it. Yeah. And he's just goes out. He's like, what the hell? It's a bunch of goddamn hippies. <laughs> and that's, they've established that he does not like hippies. If he's driving on the road and he looks over and he sees, he's a bunch of goddamn hippies. <laughs> <laughs> so he looks out his window and he sees a bunch of goddamn hippies out there. Uh. <laughs> So they're getting ready to go to Sharon Tate's house and kill her. 
But he comes out there and he's like, what the hell are you doing here? Get the hell out of here. Get this piece of crap off my property. This is a, a closed gate community, all right? And you can yeah. see Tex, the guy, part of the Manson family, he's like a little unnerved by this guy. He even like slams his fist down on the hood of his car and Tex has a gun, but still he's a little scared of him because yeah. uh, Rick, he comes on pretty strong and even like the redheaded girl in the Manson family, she's like dead eyeing him. And he goes, "What are you looking at? What the <laughs> hell?" Are you looking at? <laughs> and he's like, "Well, let me just turn the car." He goes, "No, you put it in reverse and back the hell down." And so he's like, this kind of moment of shame for all of them as they go in reverse down the hill. I love that. Yeah. And then you realize Tex and and the ginger actually recognize him. You're like, hey, it's like, hey, that's Rick Dalton that's from the TV from show Bounty, Bounty Law. Law. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I can't believe it. And he's like, I, I don't know if they say something like, he's kind of an asshole. <laughs> 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 and, you know, because now Rick, he's like uh, put on some weight. They kind of established that he loves Italian cuisine and he gained like, oh, yeah. 50 pounds or something. And now his hair is long. It's mm-hmm. pretty funny. But yeah, they're the Tex and the Ginger are pretty much starstruck for a while until one of the other uh, Manson girls comes up with the idea: we should kill the people who taught us to kill. Right, and so they go into there, and the whole thing with Brad Pitt smoking the LSD cigarette, walking the dog. It basically goes back to the earlier parts of the film. What seemed aimless is just basically now setting up the state, setting up the stage for what's about to happen now. And I, I've seen you and I have seen movies where people have fought while they were drunk or something. But I, this may be the first time I've ever seen someone fight while they were you know, tripping balls on LSD (laughs) or something. Well, another thing is we have to establish that uh, Brad Pitt actually met all of them earlier in the movie because he picked up a young girl who uh, kind of propositioned him. And he was like, how old are you? And he realized she was underage and he's kind of just humoring her meeting all the people. And he used to do stunts on this ranch and he's the like, spawn movie ranch. yeah, he's like the spawn movie ranch. He's like, what the hell? It's obvious. All these people are squatting here. So he wants to meet. He wants to see the guy who owns the place. I forget his name. Is it Dave or something? It's it's George spawn. And he's played by Bruce Dern. Okay. He's like, I want to see George. And they're like, no, 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 George. He's, he's sleeping right now. You can't visit him. So they build up this big moment where they're all watching him. He goes, well, I'm going to see George and I'm going to take a no for an answer. He goes up to the house and, you know, Dakota Fanning, she plays Squeaky Frome, and she's like, he won't mm-hmm. see you. And he's like, I'm coming in this door, and nothing's stopping me. She's like, fine, come on in. So he comes in, he goes down the hallway, and the music's kind of ominous. It's like, they're going to totally find a skeleton, right? He's going to open the door, and the guy's dead. But he opens it up, and the, there's a person kind of hunched over, you know, in their bed, turned over. And he's like, George? George? And he's like shaking him. And he turns over and it's Bruce Dern. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> he's like, yeah, it, who the hell are you? And he's all crabby. It was fantastic reveal that it was just a crabby old man instead of like a corpse or something, you know? Yeah. And Spawn clearly doesn't remember Booth. And at this point is under the Manson girl spell that he just doesn't really care anymore. Mm-hmm. And the first time you watch 
I've watched this. I watched this twice on Saturday. The, and the first time I watched it, I was actually kind of afraid for Brad Pitt. I didn't know yeah. if he was going to make it out of there alive. I mean, we have he's, no idea. It, what... it's established that he's a badass and he can handle himself, but he's outnumbered. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Tex is away, but I mean, he's, he's on his way and we're just kind of open. Oh, crap. Cliff Booth doesn't have a gun or way to, to defend himself. So unless Tex is equally crafty, uh, he doesn't stand a chance. And maybe those girls are going to want to fight as well. Yeah. But uh, luckily that doesn't happen. So because there's no conflict, this third act confrontation starts where you don't know exactly what they're capable of. And Cliff Booth, like we've established, is tripping balls at this time. <laughs> so you've got this great little Mexican standoff where instead of having a gun of himself, he's he's like pointing his little finger at a black like gun and laughing his ass off. And yeah. I, we're laughing kind of nervously in the audience, but we're just thinking at some point, is it going to pull the trigger or is Tex so taken aback by how the Cliff Booth character is acting that everyone's frozen? Like they don't know exactly what to do about this. Yeah, and Brandy the dog is sitting on the couch just like, She's not going to do anything. She's waiting to be commanded, you know? Yeah. And I love uh, Brad Pitt's also holding a big-ass can of dog food that he... Yeah. Do you remember the name of the dog food? It was something hilarious, and it said rat, oh, rat I flavor. don't. I wish I wish it could be something like uh, like Doggy D or something from, like, the Road Warrior. It, I don't... It, said, I, it, it, it didn't... It didn't uh, spring to memory. It said something for mean dogs. Yeah, good food for mean said, dogs, I think. And yeah, and at the bottom, it said rat flavor. Rat, oh, I didn't catch that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. So he's holding the can of dog food when they, the guy, Tex kicks in the door and the redheaded girl's there and she's got a knife. And uh, the other girl comes through the back, the scary pale girl. And he's like, yeah. Is there anyone else in the house? And he's like, well, yeah, so-and-so sleeping. I don't remember the wife's name because we just uh, uh, briefly in the film. I want to say it's Francesca, but I could yeah, be wrong about I think that. I like, Francesca's sleeping. So he, she goes and gets Francesca, and she's like, what the hell is going on? You know. And he's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm the devil, and I'm taking you to hell or something uh, like that. I'm here to do devil's work. Yeah, and he's like, no, no, it's something stupider. I know you. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I've met you before. And they're like, what? And he goes, yeah, I met you. And I saw you pale face and your red hair. I've seen you before. You're all out on that ranch. And they're all kind of like a little unnerved by that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, what are we waiting for? We need to kill him. You know, shoot him. And that's when he's like, and yeah. Brandy goes to work on Tex. And it was like, up until this moment, I was like, oh, this is the revisionist ending. This is yeah. not, they're not, we're waiting for them to go kill the Vance family to kill Sharon Tate. And I realized that's not going to happen because yeah. Rick and Cliff are, are here to keep it from happening. And we, we, we almost forget that Rick's, that 
uh, Rick Dalton's even home. Yeah, he's. We don't. We don't. Right <laughs> we don't realize he's in the backyard in the swimming pool. He's a. He's got headphones on. He's jamming out, and he's you know drinking his giant margarita. <laughs> That's one of my favorite parts earlier when he goes out to yell at the hippies. He's got the whole blender full of margarita, yeah. and he's yelling at him. He takes like a sip of it. He just starts yep. drinking from it, and the whole audience laughed at that too. You know. He's just yeah. like such an alcoholic, you know. And so he's oh, yeah. in the pool and he hears none of what's going on. He doesn't hear, you know, Brandy is mauling Tex and he gets him in the crotch. He's just like, yep. and it's pretty brutal, you know, the Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a, it, it's a pretty dark lit scene, but I mean, there's no, there's no ambiguity about what's happened to that man's groin. I like, first, first he like, he goes after the leg and then he works his way up to the groin. Yeah. And then Cliff Booth goes, and then he goes to the, to the, uh, to the character he just threw a can of dog food at. Yeah, I love she screams and charges at him. He just throws the dog food at her face. And it puts, it dents her face. And I'm just going, oh crap. It's brutal. And then the dog grabs her, like, either by, like, the, ha- one of the, one of her limbs or something. Yeah, he makes the sound again. He goes, and then the dog <laughs> runs to the girl and starts mauling her. Yeah, and Francesca, I think punches punches either the yeah, it was either the pale the girl or it was the ginger. I forget yeah, which. She punches but the then ginger the, girl and then runs to her bedroom. <laughs> yeah, and then the ginger charges Pitt. They both get up from the ground. He realizes he's, he's been stabbed, and then be then he starts what has to have been like the most protract the most sustained scene of blunt force head trauma I've seen since like that Halloween reboot and can sequel I just say, thing that came out last week uh, last year sl- I mean he's slamming her head into the phone and stuff <laughs> people were cheering in the theater I was groaning I was like I can't believe this is happening I, I can't believe what I'm watching thought, here I laugh at over the top violence and that's what that was and I was laughing and can I just say my favorite part of the whole film is when the pale girl, she grabs a gun and I think she fires it. You're not sure if Brad Pitt has been shot or not, right? Mm-hmm. He falls to the ground. She goes crashing through the window into the pool <laughs> where Ricky's like, what the hell? What the hell's going on? He's like freaking out and he, he's getting out of the pool. She's like writhing around the pool. She's firing in the air. And he's like, what the God? I don't know if does he say goddamn hippie or something like that? Yeah. He runs to the tool shed and I was like, Oh, he's going to get a shotgun or something. Right. That's yeah. what he probably owns a, a rifle. Right. He comes out with the flamethrower from the Nazi movie. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed like, so hard. He's like, that moment. he's just roasting her in the pool, just setting his whole pool on fire. Just, and she's like, <laughs> It is like I was laughing so hard. I had tears in my eyes because it's I, so ridiculous. I did not see that coming. I, I and I love it when Tarantino can surprise you. I mean, it, it, he when he foreshadows when it's not very obvious. Yeah, that's that's when the best things can happen. So well, uh, when she finally stops moving and she's like, it's just charred black husk and just smoking yeah. off. She like sinks into the pool. Yeah. And then cut to the police there and like, uh, sir, can you tell us what happened? I was like, well, I'm just drinking some margaritas in the pool and these goddamn hippies show up. (laughs) (laughs) 
And Cliff is being questioned, and he says he said it, his name. He said he was the devil, and he's here to do some devil shit or something <laughs> like that. I love that, and he's like, uh, his wife like took like five sleeping pills. He goes, she's going to be out. I'm going to come with you to the hospital. He's like, no, nah, stay with your wife. And he's like, Brandy's in there sleeping with her. She'll be fine. Yeah. And he's like, I just wanted to tell you, Cliff, you're a, a really good friend. And he's like, well, I try. <laughs> and the ambulance drives him away and he's just kind of standing there and all of a sudden you hear the neighbor played by Emil Hirsch he's one of the J.C. Bring yeah who got killed he got murdered in yes. real history he's like yeah. hey man how's it going he's like oh hey he's like aren't you Rick Dalton he's like yeah and he goes dude what the hell is going on down here we heard all this racket and stuff and he goes oh man a bunch of damn hippies broke into my house <laughs> They were high on something, I think, and they're trying to kill us. And he's like, oh, my God. And he's like, yeah, my, my buddy Cliff, he, he killed two of them, and I roasted one. And he's like, Ro- <laughs> roasted? And he goes, oh, yeah, I got a flamethrower. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, the way he talks is so funny. And then you hear Sharon on the speaker. She's like, hello, is everything okay? And he's like, oh, hello, Sharon. And she's like. It turns out they're fans of Bounty Law. Yeah. They, they want to meet him. And they call him up there, and the gate opens, and he goes up there, and he meets them. And basically what really happens in real life never happens. Right. They thwarted it. They kept it from happening. And I realized, like in Glorious Bastards, this is the way Quentin Tarantino, pref- Tarantino prefers this would have happened instead. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm I'm sure we would all would have loved to uh, to for that alternate version of history to play out, and and, and some people were and, and there was criticism, and it was a reasonable thing to be critical of the possibility that showing an alternate version of events would kind of be insensitive to the real life losses, but. I, I think Tarantino pay, played it carefully, especially in regards to Tate's character. Like the last time we see her, we kind of see her from an overhead shot. But I think hearing her through that uh, that speaker, w- one of the things that uh, that uh, that I heard about was that when Tarantino was making the movie, Sharon Tate's sister was kind of worried about it, so he met with her showed her the script, talked about his plans about it. And when she saw Roby's performance as her sister, she said that even her speech, the way she talked was very much like her sister. Sharon Tate had a voice that was described as something between a whisper and a prayer. And the way that her voice comes through on that speakerphone, there was just this kind of, uh, there was a very comfortable soothing quality about it, but she also seemed to have nailed the Sharon Tate accent or Sharon Tate's, uh, uh, speaking voice. And speaking of that scene where she goes to see the wrecking crew, they didn't recreate the scene so that Roby could be in the film. That's Sharon Tate on screen. Yeah. I noticed that. And I thought that was great. It's kind of celebrating the real Sharon Tate in that moment. Yeah, so it gives her the happy ending that she was denied, and the movie is a fairy tale. It's called yeah. Once Upon a Time for a Reason. Once Upon a Time, yeah. Yeah, so uh, 
So, yeah, and uh, I did not on both showings. Uh, I stayed until the till the credits went to black and you just saw nothing but the credits roll up. Usually I stick behind for that stuff, but I, I was sitting in a room for three hours. I uh, I needed to get up and walk around and go get Here's, something to eat. What's funny uh, is I said – you said, But you okay. said that you texted me that there was a kind of a stinger of yes. sorts, the end credits. Yeah, I don't know if it's Marvel movies or what, but I'm – I will sit still, <laughs> you know, here's the funny <laughs> thing. It was in a reclining theater with a reclining seat, but I sat Fine. straight up the entire film and it wasn't until the end credits that I finally reclined and was like, ah, you know, like <laughs> I was kind of just chilling. And then as we know, in all Quentin Tarantino films, the cigarette of choice, I don't know if it's, is it since Pulp Fiction? I don't know if they were in Reservoir Dogs, but Red Apple Cigarettes, uh, I don't remember it in Reservoir Dogs, but I know it. I originally heard of it in Pulp Fiction. Right. So Rick Dalton, back in his uh, Bounty Law days, he did an ad advertisement. <laughs> you know, he did a commercial right. for Red Apple cigarettes, and you know, he's talking about you know smooth and you know long drags. This filterless cigarette. They're even pre-rolled and less. <laughs> he even says less throat burn. Which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> he goes, you can buy red apple cigarettes wherever you see this life-size cardboard cutout of me, the star of Bounty Law. And it has like a picture of him there holding a cigarette. It kind of reminded me of like James Dean or something. And then it's like, and cut. And he's like, oh, that was great, Rick. He goes, and he goes, oh, God, this thing tastes like shit. And he like stamps <laughs> up the cigarette. And he's like... He's like, who the F picked this cardboard cut out of me? I got a goddamn dull chin. And he like punches himself in the face. And that was like the end. And it was like the perfect sign off for his character. <laughs> oh, no, I have got to see this again next weekend for you know more than one reason. But I need to stay for that. That's that sounds great. Oh, it was perfect. It was a perfect way to just end the whole movie. You know? <laughs> did, did you did you see it by yourself or did Heather come with you? I saw it all by my lonesome. Uh, me too. But man, um, uh, yeah, before we leave, one of the things I wanted to bring up because we talked, uh, what, what is made abundantly clear is that Rick Dalton hates hippies. Do you <laughs> think the movie has a conservative mindset towards hippies or just the Manson girls in particular? The first time we meet them, they're dumpster diving. You know, can and, I honestly say, and, I don't think the movie had a statement about class warfare or anything like that. I just right. think it was about what it was about. It was depicting it, but I don't think it had a statement about it. Okay. At least I, was I thinking, didn't think that. Yeah, I was thinking maybe Dalton kind of resents them because there's a, you know, a pop culture swing. The studios are going to want to make movies or tv shows that appeals to whatever's happening yeah, that's culturally that's and possible. he feels like you know his actors of his kind are about to be thrown to the wayside although rick also I, I think rick also forgets that his attempts to transition to a movie star failed and he left the bounty law show before 
uh, it was completed, so he probably right. burned his bridges that way more than uh, a pop culture change. It, yeah, it could be a fear of a new generation that he does not understand at all, you know, right. fears them or he just wants them to stay away. I don't mm-hmm. think he's that much of a deep thinker, honestly. <laughs> There's this great part where he's on the set and he's talking to a little girl actress and she asks him what he's reading and he's reading the story about, I don't remember what it was called, but it was brilliant. It was yeah, about it, this guy who would break in horses mm-hmm. and she's like, well, what is he doing now in the book? And he's like, well, he's ever since he kind of broke his hip, he's never been the same and he's kind of like not the go-to guy anymore. And he just starts breaking down and crying. Yeah. 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 That the, the novel's hitting pretty close to home for him right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that act, that actor that played the, the little girl, she, she was excellent. Yeah, she was. I don't know where, I don't know where, or Tarantino found her, but I mean, I hope that that kid has a What's career. She's on a show that my wife and I watch. She's on a sitcom called uh, American Housewife, and she's the young daughter. And she is just like that on the show. She's very to the point, and she says funny things. She doesn't call her parents by their, like, mom and dad. She calls them by their names, and it's pretty funny. So it was kind of funny to see her in that, because she's a very talented young actress. Or actor. She Actor, know. remember, she doesn't like yes. being called an actress. And he, call, he calls her pumpkin puss, and she just yeah. kind of makes a face. She goes, I don't appreciate little nicknames like that. We'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she also tells and him I, that he's his scene where he acts, that was the greatest performance I've ever seen, and brings him to tears. <laughs> yeah. And he's actually pretty pretty good in it as well. I mean, that was a really wonderful. I love how the director goes, "Yes, that's what I want. Evil Hamlet. That's that's exactly what I wanted." And I love that they don't play him to be a buffoon when he's acting. He's actually decent. Yeah. But uh, and speaking of uh, young child act- actors, actors, I should say, um, during the end credits, I saw uh, a name i I'm, I'm trying to remember it was like uh let me let me just look this up if you recall in kill bill volume two uh there was an actress who played uh uh beatrix kiddo's daughter oh yeah and and she was in this movie uh i forget but i didn't i didn't recognize her i mean obviously she's grown up now but uh I didn't. Well, I didn't I did remember. Several... I didn't remember who she was. I don't. I don't think she was one of the, uh, um, the Manson girls. But her name is Perla Handy Jardine. Huh. She played BB in Kill Bill Volume Two. I noticed her name in in the credits for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but oh, okay. I guess I just need to watch it again. Well, I noticed that Uma Thurman's daughter is actually in the movie. Her real life daughter, Maya Hawk. Yeah, I didn't. I I, got, I missed that too. She's the girl who says, "I forgot my knife. I need to go back to the car to get it." And Tex oh, gives wow. her the keys. That is her. Oh wow! I forgot. She, yeah, she hops in the car and just drives away. <laughs> and he's like, "Well, we'll just hitch rides home after we murder everybody." And, yeah. Uh, also, Kevin Smith's daughter, Harley Quinn Smith. She was yeah. in the film. I knew I knew that about it because uh, Smith and Har- and his daughter had a podcast where they uh, chatted together, but they also talked about getting cast in that movie. So I I, I saw her. Also, uh, Andy McDowell's daughter, 
was in it. She plays Pussycat, Margaret Qualley. The, that's that's the girl. That's the, Margaret Qualley is is her daughter. Is Andy McDowell's daughter? Oh wow, I didn't even know that. And if you look at her, you're like when certain facial expressions are like, "Holy shit, I see Andy McDowell in there." Yeah. I just know her as the the girl from the Nice Guys. I didn't <laughs> yeah. recognize her from anything else. She's also in this interesting film on Netflix called I.O., where she's like the last human on Earth as all the oxygen has depleted, except her on this mountaintop she lives on. Mm-hmm. And that's a very interesting film, too, starring her. If you yeah. uh, check out a film with an ambivalent ending where you're like, what? When it's over. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, um, I think, uh, is there anything else we want to say about this movie before moving on? You know, I got to say that I wasn't sure I was that excited about it because I didn't know what it was. I wasn't sure, you know, about the Manson stuff, but I'm glad that I watched it and I was thoroughly entertained by it. I'm, I'm very glad that I went to see it. Yeah, me too. I, I just, just, you know, despite the fact that there are moments where there's, it's very suspenseful. For the most part, this is a hangout movie in the spirit of something like Dazed and Confused or Smoking and the Bandit where the stakes are as low as possible. Yeah. And it just feels like something that I could watch and be relaxed by. It could be a comfort food movie in the future. Yeah. So uh, I, see this movie. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite movies that I've seen of this year so far. Uh, and I can't wait to revisit it. I can see flipping channels like years from now and whatever point it is in the movie on HBO, just sitting there and watching the rest of it. Cause you want to see the ridiculous ending. <laughs> right. And just enjoy. So, so anyway, uh, let's move on to, uh, your pri- your pick for a present, uh, film or show that you have watched. Uh, what do you have to, uh, talk about? Okay, here do I talk about a movie or a TV show? Uh, you can talk about either one, but I figured there's a there's a particular movie that uh, you wanted me to watch, at, or or it's it's basically up to you. Yes, it, I, this is a film I literally had no idea existed. Uh, I have a Hulu account, and I you can go through it at the beginning of each month and s- say newly added movies and kind of look through yeah. there. And there was a movie starring Pedro Pascal who is now going to play the Mandalorian in the new Star Wars TV show coming soon. Mm -hmm. And he was the Red Viper on Game of Thrones. So I was like, oh, I love this guy. What is this movie? So I watched the trailer, and it's a very... I'm going to say this movie has a lot of character. It looks very low budget, but with character, you know? It looks interesting. The set design, the technology, it has like a personality. So I was like, oh, I got to watch this. This looks weird. And it's called The Prospect, a 2018 film that I assume probably was in festivals, stuff like that. I don't know if a lot of people know about it. Right. But uh, I watched the film and I was, uh, it's kind of one of those inspiring films because it's so so low budget for what they accomplished. With such a low budget, you know what I'm saying? Right. I think the budget was a little over three million. Yeah, and it looks it's mostly outdoors, like in 
in the thick brush of jungle or something. I don't. I didn't look where they filmed it, but they. Uh, I think they filmed it at like a uh, a state park in Washington. I forget which one. Right. Because you know natural scenery with trees and plants. I mean, it looks gorgeous, right? Right. And it's about this uh, father and daughter. There. This is in the future. I'm assuming. I don't know if it's our universe or what. But uh, this man is a prospector. He goes to planets for rare things that he mines ore or whatever, and then gets a payday, and then they move on. And you get the sense that his daughter is really tired of this lifestyle. And he's dragging her yet again to another planet when a barely functioning pod that they have to land in. And like, I think he even says that they rented the pod. It's not theirs. And uh, it's kind of, I kind of read more about it after I watched it. It kind of, I thought it was like an allegory to maybe back in the the gold rush days, you know, everybody going to where they're hoping to find gold and riches, but a lot of people end up being desperate and broken down. They're out of resources. And when they see somebody else, they want to jack them, you know, and steal what they have, et cetera. So immediately when the father-daughter, they kind of established that there's some kind of weird plant that grows in the ground that's very dangerous. It could burn your skin off, but you have to dilute it with water and tear it open. And inside, there's this rare gem that's worth like 10,000 credits, they say, or something. Yeah. And not long after that, they run into Pedro Pascal and his strange uh, companion who want to rob the dad. And the film is mostly about how the daughter handles all these things. Uh, I Did you watch the film? I saw it last night before going to bed. I'm curious of what you thought of all this. I, I, I actually thought it was a well-made film considering its budget. And uh, like you said, I mean, the, the budget go, I, I have a suspect, I, I suspect that a lot of the, and I could probably be proven wrong on this. I, I think I suspect a lot of those effects were maybe uh, done like either in camera or with or through more practical means. Yeah. Uh, but as far as characterization, I think some characters benefit from it. Like the the character played by so- Sophie Thatcher, she's great. But this is a movie where character development is done more through. Uh, implication and through how a character makes a decision or whatever, yeah. Uh, rather than simply telling you, you you get the feeling that the daughter has been uh, prospecting with her father more like he's dragged her into it and he didn't give her a choice. You don't, I don't, I, I think that maybe the the mother is no longer with them or or either dead or they're separated. Yeah, and you discover that the father just. Uh, at the wrong particular time decides to be a little bit too greedy and that yeah. complicates uh further events in the film but yeah i get uh, the feeling that he doesn't think about his daughter at all in that moment and what could yeah. happen to her and maybe that's yeah. his problem he hasn't thought about that his whole life <laughs> her whole life right like you like you said in, in a scenario like this especially like the gold rush people uh usually consider their own uh or don't, doesn't have everyone's consideration considerations at mine uh so uh 
we get when we meet the Pascal character. And I immediately thought of the Russell Crowe character from the 310, the Yuma remake, where you've got someone who's not potentially a good person and yet seems very intelligent, very articulate. He's got, I mean, he, he's got a, he's got a really, his vocabulary is very, very wide and ranging. And, uh, I just feel like uh, maybe in some characters, like maybe the Pascal character, we could have got to know him maybe just a little bit better. But the yeah. film places more emphasis on the Thatcher character, which I think was the smarter choice. Out of all the characters, she's the most level-headed one. She's the more adult of the of any of them. Yeah, and uh, he seems almost, uh, Pedro Pascal's character seems like very simple to the point kind of thing. Like, you know, he just couldn't condone her father going for his livelihood, his stash, you know, right at that point, you know, he doesn't feel bad about her father at all. And because, you know, there's a set of rules you do and he kind of went over the line there. Right. And so he has these kind of set of rules that he has that he, and you, you have a feeling that, you know, he lets her hold the, he lets her have the gun. You know, she actually shoots him, <laughs> you know, she gets the drop on him and he's wounded, but I don't think he wants to hurt her at all. He just wants, he basically says he's been on their planet stranded there and he just wants to get away in their ship and then their ship doesn't work either. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, I suspect that he feels bad for, for her regarding what what he eventually does but uh in the moment i mean he 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 says well look that's he was he was probably going to take our stash and probably you know kill us he's the one that had the gun so um uh so yeah i i think pascal makes someone who is potentially not likable actually likable through the choices that he makes uh so yeah, yeah, I I think I agree with you on that point. And at you know the whole thing is the dad brought his daughter there because there were these mercenaries who found a deposit of this rare uh, gems or whatever they are. I don't right. And the queen's lair. Yeah, they need a, a prospector to come there to get it, and they will give them a percentage of the profits. Because it's a difficult thing to do. It's not very easy to actually get in there. And once they, uh, uh, the character played by Pedro Pascal, I think his name's Ezra. He, yes. He says, how about you and I go there? We get the, the, the uh, queen's lair. And then we get out, get off the planet and we'll split it. And she's like, okay, or whatever. So she, they become like, uh, a duo at that point. But yeah. what's, what's interesting uh, along the way, they meet some people cause he needs help with his arm and they want to trade her for all of the uh, gems they have because Android Arroyo from the wire who played bubbles. <laughs> he's in that scene. Yeah. I thought it was great to see him. He basically says, you know, it's all an illusion like this greed they just need a woman to basically, I guess, procreate or something. It's kind of free. Yeah, that's that's what I get from it. And so she gets the hell out of there. And what did you think about the scene where she basically has to amputate his arm because it's become too diseased? 
Yeah, I, I think it was a smart idea to not show the show as little as possible, but to leave a lot of it to the imagination and sound effect and the, basically the sound design of it. I, I, I was hoping they wouldn't do something like uh, for like, what is it, 127 hours or something? <laughs> the, James, the James Franco movie where he plays the guy who had to amputate his arm with whatever – uh, with a knife or whatever he had on hand, and it's just grisly as hell. But uh, I, I thought that was actually really well done. And I waited. I was waiting for her to attach some kind of uh, robot arm, but they didn't do that. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been cool? Some kind of steampunk arm or something? But yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> no. But uh, I, I actually, uh, and it gets the nearer it gets to the end of the movie, the more the kind of the plot machinations kind of kick in, and you move away from the the character heavy uh, portion of the movie. And I'm not saying it's badly done or anything, but it's it's just kind of it it just kind of feels off balance. But this is actually a really good movie considering its budget and considering the choices it makes. And it's, it's a good example of low budget filmmaking where if you just make enough good decisions creatively, you can get away with a lot. I would have liked a stronger ending, but it was fine. You know? Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing is when they get to the deposit and the, scary mercenary is watching over them they keep failing at getting the gems it keeps like deflating and they're ruining it and the guy's getting increasingly more impatient and then they end up having to fight their way out of there yeah and uh i was curious of what the film was trying to say there that they actually didn't get their riches but they do get off the planet Right. Uh, I, I mean, you 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 assume that Pascal's character knows how to mine and knows how to extract the gems without destroying them, and uh, it feels like it's leading up to a point where the daughter character tries to remember what her father told her about doing, it, and you think she's going to pull it off, and then things transpire the way that they do. So, uh, I don't know. It, that that's something I'm just a little uh, unclear of, but it, it, clearly it goes for we have to fight our way out. Well, yeah, that's uh, he doesn't have any oxygen. They're tethered like they're sharing the same oxygen. Right. And the part where he gets stabbed and he goes, just just go, just leave me here and you get out of here. Uh, she leaves, but she gets a oxygen for him and then she comes back to save him. And I thought that was interesting that she didn't yeah. actually abandon him. Yeah, she couldn't. She she's too good of a person. She couldn't have that on her conscience. And I thought there's a little bit of interesting exposition where she's talking about her favorite novel, and she doesn't actually have it anymore, but she memorized it, and she's trying to rewrite it herself right. by things she remembers, and she's adding stuff. And it sounds like she's even added herself into the book of characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ezra says, "Oh, that sounds very creative. That sounds fascinating." And she goes, <laughs> and she's like, "Really? My dad always hated it, and he didn't. Yeah, want me, he wanted me to focus on what's going on right now, not to my mind somewhere else." And he kind of says something like, "No, no, no. You need something like that in your life, some place to to disappear to, or something. I guess some kind right. of 
some kind of other place instead of being in the now. He's basically tells her that's important. And uh, I thought that was a statement kind of like on films themselves. We need to like escape reality for a while or something. Right. But he's also encouraging in the way that her father wasn't. Right. And I think that that makes, uh, I mean, her, and she's like the sensible person saying, we shouldn't be here for very long. Are we going to make it back in time for the sling? Well, I think it's called the sling back or something like that. Yeah. And he keeps, he keeps, you know, ignoring her or, you know, tossing aside her concerns. And, um, and, and I think Jay Duplass is a very, it, does very well with his performance, but I don't think we miss the father once he's no longer part of the picture. Yeah. Well, there's even the very first thing they do when they land is they find one gem and she goes, this is enough for us to pay off the pot and get a place back on so-and-so planet. And he's like, no, 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 we're not doing that. We need, this is the big score here. And she's just, she wants to just take that one gem and just get out of there and they're done. But he's like, no, 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 no. We're we're getting the long. We're here for the long haul. We're getting a huge score. We're going to be set up for life or whatever, which is yeah. turns out to just be a, a fool's errand, right? <laughs> right. But uh, but no, I I'm uh, I'm glad that you uh, brought this movie to my attention, despite the it's fact that I have a Hulu account and could have found it on myself, but I didn't <laughs> I didn't realize anything about it. So uh, I I'm glad that I watched it. Sometimes you find these rare gems and, you know, Chris Stuckman, who's on uh, YouTube, he has a channel where he reviews films. I don't know if you ever watch any of his stuff. Uh, no, I haven't. Well, he's, uh, he's directed some short films and he's talked about before how he's inspired by these low budget films. that kind of inspires him. And I tweeted him, I told him to watch this film and he said he's added it to his watch list. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, maybe he'll get. Maybe this will inspire other filmmakers. Like we could do a sci-fi film with no money or barely any money. <laughs> it it possibly. I mean, I I laugh at that, but it's it's no doubt. I mean, it, it no doubt could uh, inspire people to do that. So yeah, hey, if Richard Linklater can make Slatter, uh, Slacker and inspire Kevin Smith to make Clerks, I mean, yeah, exactly. This sort of thing could repeat itself. That's what I think. Something like this will do. I don't know yeah. if it's a, a great film. It's an interesting film. Right. Okay, so uh, any other thoughts on Prospect before we move on to the last topic? No, I'm good. Just like okay. if it sounds interesting to anybody, they should seek it out. Yeah, and it's it's <laughs> not it, – I mean the movie is you know R-rated, but it's not – overly violent it's not overly profane i don't think there's hardly any profanity in it but it's it's a very intense movie at times so uh i have become a huge fan of pedro pascal or is it pascal or pascal i think it's pascal but i could be wrong about that i i'm excited to see him in the mandalorian although i'm pretty sure he never takes his helmet off so i don't <laughs> i don't know right. if you'll ever see his face if you want to see something really i mean he was in the equalizer too which i thought he was good in but if you really want to see something that will surprise you um he was in the second kingsman movie the golden circle he's oh, basically right. doing a riff on burt reynolds like he's got a southern accent in it as well uh, so, uh, and I don't, I don't know if you've seen any of the King, either of the Kingsman movies so far, but, uh, I would highly recommend those, but 
I think Pascal's the best thing about the Golden Circle. So um, okay, cool. That that's something to keep in mind. Excellent. All right. Well, anyway, like we said before, Prospect is available to watch on Hulu, uh, so you could see it there. You could probably rent it uh, from any other uh, streaming or video service, so uh, be sure to keep that on your watch list. Uh, So on to our last topic of discussion, and uh, Jason and I – I mean, Jason has talked about this filmmaker on his podcast uh, many times in the past, though I don't know how heavily he's concentrated on a particular film or whatever, but we're both fans of the filmmaker John Woo. And uh, I wanted to talk to Jason about, you know, certain memories or certain impressions about this guy's filmography. Uh, We recently seen uh, Manhunt. Jason gave his thoughts on the film, uh, which is currently streaming on Netflix because Netflix bought the distribution rights for it and uh, gave his thoughts on what is clearly an entertaining but an extremely nutty movie. (laughs) I'll say. Yeah. And I just want to talk about a couple of things. Uh, John Woo recently came to mind because uh, earlier this year, the Criterion Channel uh, started. Uh, they were bouncing back from uh, being filmstruck. That closed down. But when the Criterion Channel premiered, uh, it had a whole bunch of films uh, added to it. Then they kept adding films, and some films were on a rotation level. But... Uh, when it first started, I thought, well, I've got all these classic movies to either watch or rewatch. What am I going to choose first? And I couldn't help but notice that they, that they had an early John Woo film called Last Hurrah for Chivalry. And it's one <laughs> of those, uh, I think it's either called Wuxia, uh, martial arts films where there are, uh, where people have like supernatural abilities to leap long distances. Or it's kind of like watching a movie like uh, 36 Chambers of Shaolin or something like that. But uh, that I that was the first movie I watched for the Criterion Collection. And it's it was very entertaining. You did see some thematical uh, touchstones that would later show up in later John Woo movies, such as uh, characters from different sides of the road or the or 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 uh, either from different classes kind of uh, coming together for a, uh, for a common cause or something like right. one's a, an assassin for hire, but mostly spends his days getting drunk. The other one is very forthright and uh, has yeah. uh, great abilities team. as a martial artist, but mostly stays out of trouble. They get involved in this one guy's quest to get revenge for his master getting killed and I won't spoil anything further from that, but it made me f- think about uh, these common themes uh, that John Woo would later return to in in uh, later films. I mean, he really hit his stride in the mid '80s with A Better Tomorrow, which was all about uh, you know heroic bloodshedding. I believe is one of the names <laughs> that the genre had as uh, has inspired. So um, I just wanted to ask you, Jason, what do you consider it to be the first time you ever heard of John Woo at all? Oh, wow. That's interesting. The first time I ever heard of John Woo was an interview with Sam Raimi. 
And Sam Raimi said, he name-checked John Woo, and he said, if you guys ever want to watch an insane action movie, rent The Killer. He said, it's amazing. You'll never see action like that anywhere else today. And I was like, uh, it might have been Starlog or something like that. And I was like, huh, John Woo, The Killer. Okay, I wrote that down. And I, the next time I went to Blockbuster, I found it. And I said, this is it. This is it. This is the movie that, uh, <laughs> that uh, Sam Raimi's talking about. Steven, we got to watch this. So we went back to my apartment, and we put on The Killer, and boy, we did not know what we were in for. Because that was one of those movies that, as soon as it's over, rewind. You know, it's a VHS. Watch it over again. That's yeah. how good it was. I had never seen action like that in a film. The the way the Chow Yun-Fat, the good guy, unloads an entire clip in one guy, reloads, then fires and unloads the other clip in the other guy. It's <laughs> <You know? laughs> just like constantly just emptying uh, rounds into uh, bad guys. And, you know, he's got a pistol in both hands. He's sliding on the floor. He's shooting each guy 10 times. It was just like this amazing visceral kind of action that ruined me from that moment forth, <laughs> you know, because once that John Woo style got out there to everybody and it was influencing other directors, they could only do it mediocre. They couldn't do it as good. And I think it's until Robert Rodriguez did Desperado that he actually got it down pretty good, too. Yeah. But a lot and, of times it was just a pale imitation, you know what I mean? Right. And Rodriguez, like Woo, also kind of lets you know early on that these movies don't inhabit the physical universe that you and I occupy. It's like, sometimes characters don't reload <laughs> their guns. And sometimes it takes more than one bullet wound to take someone down. One uh, of my favorite some, things in The Killer, Adam, is yeah. cars of bad guys driving up. The car doesn't even stop. The guys just jump out and roll. <laughs> <on the ground>. Yes. <laughs> it's like, they can't even stop the car. They just, <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, like, what about those guys who were tossing a soccer ball around? Where were they? Oh, there they are. <laughs> but uh, the first time I heard of it, I mean, you, you had access to, like, uh, uh, pu magazine publications, like you mentioned, Starlog, and I didn't. Most of my r movie recommendations came from trailers on VHS tapes that I would rent, and I rented Dragon, a Bruce Lee story, uh one time and it had the trailer for hard target on it oh. and i would re-watch that trailer that that teaser I, it was an actual trailer i was like oh man i hope i hope this is available soon i have no idea if, if it was at that time but uh but i but I, all of a sudden it said you know from acclaimed action filmmaker john Wu. so okay i'm gonna have to take note of this guy because that i'm seeing clip footage from that trailer you know action movies don't really look like that yeah no no one would ever do that so when i eventually i got to see the movie i was kind of blown away I, the the movie is a hard target is a lot of fun it's very cheesy in some respects but that's that's what's going to happen when you cast wilford brimley as a cajun <laughs> but um Cue the grass. But you, 
Yeah, <laughs> make the jackrabbit slap the bear. But um, <laughs> you had, uh, uh, but, but those action scenes are are amazing. And Wu not only has a good visual eye for composition, but he never loses. He never, you're never lost in the geography of where you are, where the characters are. Yeah. Uh, there's just a clear cut. There's just a there's a way to shoot it and a way to edit it. And Wu has that skill set down. And I think and it's something that continues to this day when you've got a director, usually from like uh, another country, uh, like say, you know, John Wu's from Hong Kong. There's a certain discipline to making action in uh, the film studios over there that American directors either don't take the time to cultivate that skill, a lot of them do a lot of quick cutting just to hide their inability to know how to block a scene uh so uh that that's that's something that makes a whole lot of action scenes made by certain directors over here very disappointing you don't see that same kind of dedication uh to the action scenes because i mean they are hard to make and they're they are they take a lot of time to make but you know a lot of hard work usually yields great results so uh and I didn't he- and I remember after seeing Hard Target, uh, John Woo films, at least at where I lived, weren't so readily available. Broken Arrow came out. Uh, I started hearing about that name again. But at that particular point, my parents had a cable subscription. So you had the HBO first look specials, you know, the little uh, behind the scenes things for movies that were going to come out. Mm-hmm. And they showed clips of hard-boiled and bullet to the head. And oh, I was nice. just thinking, well, Broken Arrow's fine, but now I want to see those movies, and how am I going to do that? You know because as far remembered? as I know, the video Martin Pleasant Plains isn't carrying them. You know what I just remembered? There's a scene what? in True Romance where Patricia... Uh, no, pa- not Patricia Arquette. The Yeah, 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 that's her. Okay, she's watching a John Woo movie. And yeah. Chow Yun Fat is in it, and I remember seeing that and going, "What film is that? What is that?" <laughs> That's Better Tomorrow too, yeah. Yeah, Better Tomorrow Part Two. And when we finally got a copy of Better Tomorrow Part Two and were able to watch that scene, it was like one of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> it really was. It was like finally I get to see this movie. And you know what's funny is the killer. I was just lucky that Blockbuster had it. They didn't have any other John Woo movies. It wasn't until we went to a comic book convention that I looked and I found Hard Boiled. And it had Chow Yun-Fat on the cover with a shotgun and holding a baby. And I was like, I must own this movie. (laughs) And I think eventually it actually showed in a midnight showing, like at a mall somewhere around here. And we Uh all went to see hard boiled in the theater. Oh man. And that was awesome. And there was a thing we did back then where, uh, you know, cause it was John Woo. We'd go, woo, you know, whenever some <laughs> awesome action would happen. And we were doing that in the theater and it was a mostly, mostly Asian audience. And I wonder if they were like, what are these jackasses doing? But we would get excited by all the action and go, woo. Oh no. Especially when Charlie and fat would, you know, plug a guy 15 times. <laughs> and what's funny but, is have you ever seen hard boiled uh yeah i was about to get to the first time that i did uh I, oh, i've okay. seen it many times but the first time i saw it was uh 
I saw a listing. Uh, we had satellite. Uh, we had one of those big ass satellites uh, for cable television, and it played six a.m. on a Saturday morning on Cinemax. So I set the re- the VCR to record it. But I was so excited, I stayed up all night and then watched it, and then <laughs> fell asleep after I watched it. That's and. Uh, uh, and I, I, I couldn't believe what I was watching. I, I mean, at that particular point, the cinematography had improved. There's a, admittedly, kind of a low-budget, shaggy dog quality to earlier films uh, that yeah. were made, like Better Tomorrow or The Killer. But you kind of notice there's like this glossy sheen to Hard Boiled. Like he was getting really, really better. Or maybe he was just yeah, hiring different cinematographers who could bring that style out. I think that and was the last film he made before he came to America, wasn't it? It was. It really was. And uh, and I just remembered being, oh, this is crazy. It didn't even bother me that the my recording ends right before you see the last shot of uh, Tony Leung's character at sea. Uh, you basically see the shots of those paper cranes that he's making being thrown into the water. But I didn't know if he was alive or dead. <laughs> the You're like, oh, well. Oh, well. I, uh, I guess he's dead, but, I, but I, you know, his problems are over, I guess. <laughs> as long as you missed none of the gunfight choreography, you were fine. Yeah, no, I, I I made sure I didn't miss any of that mess, but uh, but when I eventually got to see it, uh, I, I believe I I bought it on VHS first, then got it on DVD, and I was able to see the actual ending. And the weird thing is, I don't know. Uh, there's a way to interpret that last shot. Is it him at sea just finally getting away from it all, or is that him going into the afterlife or something? <laughs> I don't. Uh, th- there's a there's a way to look at it that way. I, yeah. I I just tend to believe he survived the gunshot wound to the stomach, and he can throw away his violent life at, uh, away and sail on to the ocean or wherever he's going. But uh, the most messed up scene in that film is when he accidentally kills the cop. And uh, Chayon Fat says, it didn't happen. You're fine. You know, it, that didn't just happen. Just don't even think about it, you know, essentially. Shake it off. Do you know well, the part I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And Chayon Fat, basically, we find out the guy he kills at the beginning of the movie in the Tea House shootout was actually an undercover cop, too. Yeah. So just don't think about it. It's good. <laughs> it never <laughs> happened. Yeah. What's funny is if you watch Hard Boiled and then Hard Target back to back, you'll see that he used same ideas from Hard Boiled in Hard Target. Yeah. You know, he aped some of the same, uh, I I wouldn't call them gags, but same choreography for Hard Target, which is fine. And I've always heard there's a director's cut of that or an unrated cut that I've never seen that I would love to. Of hard, hard tar- target or of hard hard, ball? Tar- hard target. Um, I have well, <laughs> and I, I've texted you about this. Uh, there, I I went on back in the days where I used to use eBay. I don't do that anymore. But um, I there was a guy out there who was making custom made bootleg copies of the international cut so there's the theatrical cut that we got there's an international cut that's a little bit more violent Ah. 
And he not only had access to that, it's basically, I think he ripped a laser disc that had unremovable uh, Korean subtitles on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the second disc, he had the work print. And uh, the. The international cut, I think, is only like a few minutes longer, and it just contains a lot more squibs. Uh, there's there's this one great moment during that shootout in the store, in the warehouse where they guy have all those Mardi Gras uh, floats and stuff. Where yeah. he he runs into the guy with who's always got like a cigar in his mouth, yeah. and he shoots him several times. Roundhouse kicks him, shoots him again several times. Yeah. Roundhouse kicks him again. It just seems like it goes on longer in that cut. That's ridiculous. Isn't that Sven Thorson? With I the think star? that is, yeah. I love when he does the kick. I mean, the, the guy's been shot, or maybe it's the guy with the motorcycle helmet. There's a part where he does a roundhouse kick, and you hear a guitar go, <laughs> like right as he does it. And I think it's hilarious. Just yeah. like the electric guitar. I love it. Yeah. I was always a fan of Jean-Claude Van Damme, too, before that. I love the movie Lionheart. Yeah. And uh, so I thought it was exciting. Uh, you know, I heard the turmoil, uh, you know, on the set where he was like, get a shot of my butt, and, you know, and stuff like that. And John was like, dude, what the hell? Get a shot of my bicep here. I need to do the splits. And he's just like, I don't know what the hell's going on here. <laughs> Well, it's weird. A lot of the turmoil I heard was uh, just he had to resubmit the movie to the MPAA multiple times because of the violence. But having watched the international cut and even having watched the rough, the rough draft of the movie, I should say, Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty tame by today's comparisons where you can get away with a whole lot of stuff the whole premise to the film is very flimsy just to have action you know guys who hunt people (laughs) right it's the most dangerous game basically yeah and but i gotta say that i love lance henriksen in that film oh yeah the part where he's on fire for a moment and he's still yelling and that's another thing from hard-boiled remember the bad guy had a one-shot pistol just like Mm -hmm. lance henriksen does so it's just like, yeah. hey, I'd like to give this guy a one-shot pistol, too. There's something cool about a pistol that has one bullet that he has to keep reloading. It makes no sense at all that he would have yeah, that gun. <laughs> he's just he's just the guy who thinks all it takes is one shot to bring down, bring down either your target or your opponent or whatever. So he's probably really egotistical in that way. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like film. you said, the, the Mad Dog character in Hard Boiled has that same one shot pistol that gets used at a certain point but um where else was i going but yeah uh i i would like i said uh, what what woo had to tone down back then could easily pass by oh, today yeah. i think the only thing in the rough cut was <laughs> yeah uh, the only thing in the rough cut that uh that he would have to take out was at some particular point there's this montage of the Lance Henriksen character playing something on the piano and intercut with it are series are scenes of actual scenes of animals getting killed by poachers in the wild that probably oh, wow. would never make the, make the cut at oh, all yeah, no not at all but you do get the and, and it's not i mean 
the footage from the rough draft isn't all that great, so it's not like you're being subjected to horrible stuff. But you you know what you've seen. So, um, but the but it you know it it brings it 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 it, it, it brings you into the mindset of the Lance Hendrickson character who views the people that he kills no different than you know you know wild game. So. I love the this line from the film. Uh, what was his name? Chance? Chance Dubois? Chance Boudreaux. Chance Boudreaux. How was the gumbo, Chance? It was a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I also love Arnold Vosloo's performance as Pick. Yes. You wouldn't want to he's just got that feelings. he's just got that awesome uh accent he goes Randall 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 you were going to leave without saying goodbye <laughs> yeah and I love he always talks about you wouldn't want to hurt my feelings <laughs> yes and then he sh- blows out the front of the windshield with a shotgun he's just like ooh yeah it's messy yeah he was a good bad guy I love Arnold Vosloo yeah, and just in case anyone forgets, you can go on YouTube. The audiobook version of this <laughs> yes. novelization is narrated by Arnold Vosloo. It's so crazy. Funny. When you posted that, I was like, oh my god, and I listened to quite a bit of it. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I, I didn't even know it was uh, even existed. Uh, I follow uh, Gareth Evans, the British director who did the Raid films, and he did uh, the Netflix movie Apostle. He he didn't even know it existed until one of his Instagram friends posted a link to it. And I was just like, an old oh, man, I need to see what this is like. So, uh, yeah, that's definitely something you should track down. But, um, but yeah, uh, our interest for John Woo movies continued on from there. Uh, there in, in Batesville, when I was attending college, so this would have been early odds like you know 2000 or so uh there was a video store which would eventually become hastings which sadly is no longer with us uh called uh i think it was on cue or something like that they had vhs copies of the killer and bullet in the head so that's where i saw those films and uh, those blew my mind as well. And uh, I, I fell in love with the killer just like you did. And uh, we both know that there is a remake planned with um, Lupita Nyong'o, uh, who's going to be the Chow fat character. And I've texted Jason about this. Do whatever you want to, but please, for the love of God, change the ending of the killer <laughs> remake. Such a bummer. It's a bummer, and I, it's not it's not something that I hate simply because for the awful way that it turns out. I just I think it's an ending that the movie doesn't earn. Like it's not the ending that the movie is building up to. It's, uh, for example, it's like what if True Romance ended the way that Tarantino wanted to end it with the Clar- the the Clarence character, the Christian Slater character, getting killed. And not surviving that gunshot to the head. Uh, that's the way he originally wanted to end it. But as Tony Scott was making the movie, he wanted these characters to live. And that makes sense for the movie that Tony Scott made. Yeah. For the killer to kill off uh, that that and Fats character doesn't survive. I'm actually kind of okay with. But to grease the rails so that Jenny doesn't. <laughs> 
Jenny doesn't get the money or that the Daniel Lee character kills someone in uh, in view of all the other cops so he's most likely going to go to jail that you grease the rails to the point that there's no happy ending for anyone just seems like it just doesn't belong and uh, I'll be honest before that last Mexican standoff happens I turn it off (laughs) well also remember Chayam Fett says when I die give Jenny my corneas because she needs a cornea transplant he gets shot in the eyes yeah so she can't That's have dumb. corneas and remains blind. That's dumb. And, and this is something I've also texted and complained about many times. That the main bad guy is such a doofus. He's a cartoon character, yeah. He's a cartoon character, but the way that he holds a gun, there's no way that he could have hit Chow Yun Fat. He does that <laughs> thing where he's got gun, pistols, a Kimbo, and he does that thing where he extends his arm to fire, then pulls it back. It does the same thing with the other arm. So yeah. he looks like a rock'em, sock'em robot. Yeah, and yeah. Chow Yun-Fat's character's got one pistol. He's got the arm extended. He's got him in his sights. He's aiming carefully, taking his time. I don't understand how the bad guy hit Chow Yun-Fat at all, let alone two times in the chest and two times in the in the skull to take out his eyes. That's just, that's just dumb. There are some times where the director... He decides he wants to make a statement, and he also wants to punch the audience in the face. <laughs> well, the story I've always heard is that it was a scheduling conflict with the actress who was a pop star at the time. She wasn't going to be able to film the last scene, which I believe uh, Chow Yun-Fat's character still dies, but... Uh, the cop and Jenny are able to go to an airport where they've secured the money and they're going to fly over to America and uh, have Jenny's uh, cornea transplants take take place there. Ice, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you could have had a freaking uh, body double for the Sally Yeh character and you could have shot the scene that way. But, you know, with movie productions, you only have so much time, you only have so much money, and I guess John Woo just found himself in a weird position where he had to make uh, he had to make a hard decision, but I, I just hope now, if, he, if the remake actually goes, uh, actually uh, follows through, that he'll give us the happy ending. Because I, I, I think the, the killer earns... A happy ending. That, yeah. that that may just be me, but that's it's so how funny I feel. That as many times as I watched it, I did always hate the ending. But I just was like, meh. You know, I don't care about the ending anyway. You know, just like, <laughs> it's about the action I'm watching. You know. Oh wow! Yeah, it is yeah. a bummer ending, big time. Yeah. So. Uh, so anyway, uh, what I mean, what else to say? I mean, we've seen Manhunt, and we both agree. <laughs> you know, it, it's a it's a return to form of sorts, especially for that first half. And you've got you know a wrong man kind of scenario, and you've got a detective who's got like mm-hmm. really Sherlock Holmes like a sense of. Uh, looking at a crime scene and knowing what belongs and what doesn't and recreates the scenario in his mind and then it turns into a weird ass sci-fi movie (laughs) in its second half and characters who you didn't think were ever going to pull out a gun and start opening fire start doing it 
and uh, it doesn't derail the movie, but I think it, it, just, it just makes it really times. weird. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the fugitive, and it turns into some kind of weird doing experiments on homeless people to give them abilities <laughs> to sell to the military or something. It's just like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, like you meet two two assassins who clearly take whatever <laughs> pill or something, and it gives them the ability to perform their their dastardly deeds. But um, yeah, it's just it just feels like uh, you got two movies competing for space here. Yeah, uh, can you imagine reading that script? Just like, what the hell? My favorite part in that whole film. You know, I only watch it once, but I remember. Chiang, I mean, uh, John Woo is so inventive. He's, it's almost like he has too many ideas going on in his head. The, yeah. the scene that plays out with still photographs made me laugh so hard. You know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden it turns into stills and the scene is playing out like pictures. And I'm like, yeah. what the hell is going on? But at the same time, I admired him for doing it. But also at the same time, it's like, why is this happening? <laughs> right. I love that part. You, you, you have pigeons who get involved in the action, but this time a pigeon actually stops from someone from getting shot. <laughs> like you have a pigeon that flies into there and kind of gets in someone's face and it saves the life of one of the one of the heroes. Now I'm just thinking, okay, well, that's that's something that I've never seen before. You know, what's funny is um, the American films that John Woo did, Hard Target is my favorite. I thought Broken Arrow is really bad. It's just too stupid. I think that Face Off is still a lot of fun, but it's just too long. It's a long movie, you know, but there's a lot of great ideas and stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And I love that for... I love Face Off it's got a lot of character, you know? Yeah. And it's obvious that John Travolta and Nicolas Cage were having so much fun doing that movie. They were yeah. kind of, bl- they loved working for John Woo and they're just like having a great time. So I think face off is a lot of fun too. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember really liking it. And that's yeah, a weird I, sci-fi turn in it too, where he goes to prison with the magnetic boots and stuff. Right. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, Face Off is kind of my favorite, even though I, I understand the the love for uh, Hard Target. Uh, I, I do think it's kind of long and kind of self-indulgent, but I also think that Wu at this point took the opportunity. He had financial backing from uh, Michael Douglas, and I think that enabled him to get away with some stuff that he wasn't able to get away with in the past, like the boat chase that ends that movie yes originally that was supposed to be in hard target oh. so the story so the story goes and they just either ran out of budget or ran out of time or whatever but um i do have to say just thinking about a bullet in the head for a second that mm-hmm. car combat at the end of bullet in the head is insane <laughs> yeah, it is that's fantastic. I don't know if there's been a scene like that in a movie since that, the kind of car combat. I can tell you there isn't one as emotionally involving as it. Uh, I mean, you know, they're they're beating the crap out of those cars and they're running into barrels that inexplicably get set on fire or explode. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's, it's an emotionally charged scene because you hate 
that one character and yeah. you're just wanting some kind of retribution for it. But have you ever seen the alternate ending to that movie? No. Um, I believe you can see this on YouTube, but basically in the, the, cut, in the, the cut that we've seen, Tony Leung's character uh, goes into the meeting that the, I think is the actor's name is Waze Lee or Wisely or something. I can't pronounce his name. Uh, that character has just been accepted into this crime syndicate or whatever. He's bought his way into the organization with the gold plates that he stole. And right. Leung meets him there and confronts him about his betrayal because Leung finds out from the Simon Yam character that uh, his friend was shot by this Waze Lee character. And Waze just kind of blows him off, and that leads to the car combat showdown that the movie ends with. In this alternate ending, though, at that meeting, uh, Leung, when he gets blown off, Leung just decides to grab him and holds him down, pulls his uh, suit over his head, takes out a gun, and blows his head off right there in the right there in the meeting, right in front of everyone. Holy crap! And, yeah, it, it basically in the it, it's a disturbing scene to play out because <laughs> you're uh, for uh, for one thing both in both endings are emotionally charged, but uh, because you're seeing flashbacks of the character who got shot in the head and had brain damage, yeah, uh, and you're watching him uh, kind of suffer with it, but uh, when. When uh, when he's pinned him down to the table and he's pulled the shirt over his head and he's got the gun to his head, the guy who's pinned starts kind of flailing about and kind of whimpering or whatever. And there's a moment where you don't know if Leung's going to pull that trigger or not. And then it cuts to black and then you hear the gunshot. Uh, That's a crazy way to end that yeah. movie. And uh, I don't know if... Uh, if that's a, a international cut, or maybe if that's just a, an alternate ending that just yeah. never made it. I, I don't know enough about the history of that film, but what's a funny a, a lot? What's so funny about John Woo movies, especially the Hong Kong action movies, is that you're having a great time watching this insane ballet of action, but then you realize, wow, there's some kind of deep shit going on right here isn't there you know right. like you realize like there's some deep shit going on you know <laughs> i mean yeah. this isn't just about the insane action but he's really trying to say something i don't always know what it is but he's saying something you know i i like i said the going all the way back to last hurrah of chivalry there is the 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 relationship that builds between two characters usually two male characters in a John Woo movie in which uh, you know they combine their forces to fight off whatever conflict they're dealing with, and they their bond intensifies to the point that either one is willing to lay down their life for the other. So yeah. that's the reason that certain scenarios play the way they do in like The Killer or Hard Boiled or even Bullet in the Head and. It's it's there's always a strong emphasis placed on characters so that the action scenes, as amazingly well shot as they are, never feel protracted, even mm -hmm. as, even if they're crazy. Now, have you seen a Better Tomorrow and a Better Tomorrow Part Two? I have. Uh, I used to own them both on DVD. How great is the music? <laughs> 
the music is great. He's going for like this Sergio Leone like uh, this Ennio Morricone like a mix of harmonica and uh, 80s style music. <laughs> now, does it? Okay, I don't remember Chayanne Fett's character's name. Is it Mark in the first movie? Or something? Yeah, it's Mark in the first movie and Ken in the second. Yeah, Mark dies, but he's got a twin brother. <laughs> and he's just as awesome as Mark. I love that. And, of course, there's that scene where he... Uh, is that from... Which movie is it where he gives the thumbs up that's a meme? You know? I believe that's... I want to say that's the first one i could be wrong about no it's probably the second one the first one he's lighting the dollar the cigar with the dollar bill yes and the first one doesn't have as much john woo action as you want Mm -hmm. but the second one it's just like insane you know like hey let's have 50 bad guys running in with machine guns (laughs) you know that's a that that movie ruined me for or and the killer you know, I've talked about that before. When you see action movies now, it's like, where are the hundred guys running into the building? I want the good guy to kill all these guys. But instead, there's like <laughs> three bad guys. Ooh, big deal. You know, where's the 100 guys storming in or riding in on black motorcycles with helmets? You know, with, you know, John Woo really spoiled me on action. You know? <laughs> yeah, the, the only place you're likely to get something like that is uh, John Wick films or something like that. Yeah, and I love that John Wick took back action from the kind of John Woo thing. I mean, it doesn't have the John Woo type of action. It has more realistic kind of uh, action and one shots and stuff. I mean, right. Uh, John Wick isn't shooting guys 15 times. He's conserving bullets. Right. Which makes sense. Uh, I, I think both films are basically heightened reality, for lack of a better term, but uh, Wick always remembers. It, it seems like it, it, there has to be some aspect of realism to the way that people move and to the way that people act uh, in terms of gunplay and uh, the way that they wield weapons. And uh, audiences these days feel like there has to be a little bit more realism and maybe that puts some pressure on the filmmakers or something. But I just kind of wish that audiences were a little bit more educated about uh, suspending their disbelief for things like that. I mean, I love John Woo action for what it was and everything. I don't think I necessarily need to see it return unless John Woo is doing it himself. Right. I don't want to see other people doing it. Right. Because we lived through a lot of movies of people holding two guns for no reason. I mean, for God's (laughs) sakes, the, I think you might've mentioned this, the Cindy Crawford, Billy Baldwin movie where, uh, what was that Uh, called? Fair game. Fair game. He's got two pistols in it for Christ's sakes. Billy Baldwin. (laughs) Come on. You're no chow yon fat. Yeah. I haven't seen that movie in years, probably not since, uh, the mid nineties or something when it finally made its way to cable. <laughs> yeah. Good heavens. Billy Baldwin. Um, any other thoughts about John Woo before, uh, we bring this uh, episode to a close, just nostalgic affection for John Woo. I mean, you know, later on the paycheck years, remember the movie paycheck, I less like following his stuff, but I'll always love John Woo. Yeah. 
And I uh, there are these days where I think uh, the Redcliffe movie, which is like his great return to like period action, and uh, and I think and the prospect of watching a two part five hour period action movie may not be appealing to some people. I mean, you can always watch things in increments. You don't have to set aside an entire evening for something like that. But uh, that, I think, I, I still think Hard Boiled is my personal favorite, but I think the best film technically that Wu's ever made may be Red Cliff. So uh, oh, I've never seen I know that the, that the two and a half hour version of it is still readily available on most streaming services if you want to watch that. But the five hour version for me is the way to go. So five um, hours. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. it it's a, actually a really well done, well written script with a lot of characters to uh, to manage and keep track of. Which is why the movie needed to be that long, but you don't miss out on any of the the crazy action set p- pieces uh, in the two and a half hour version, which is the first version that I watched. So uh, oh, I would highly recommend that. Uh, it is every year that goes by, and uh, we don't see a release of any kind of uh, a movie that he made. I want to say it was early earlier this decade. I think it was called The Crossing, which was like a World War II era film that is still doesn't have a U.S. release of any kind. You can't stream it anywhere. You can probably like watch the trailer on YouTube or something, but otherwise, that's a uh, international release only. So it, it just feels like my knowledge of John Woo will never be complete until I see that. Uh, but uh, but otherwise, yeah, I, I I love the majority of his filmography, and I look forward to whatever he, he'll do next. And I hope he never gets old enough that he stops making it. I always feel like we can get another crazy ass movie from him. So uh, <laughs> here's wanna... my me crossing my fingers, hoping that the killer remake happens, and basically he gets something. He has a new story to tell. We'll see. I also. Thank John Woo for giving us Chow Yun Fat because I yeah. never would have known who Chow Yun Fat was if it wasn't for him. Right. And uh, you got to love that guy. Oh, yeah, definitely. But anyway, um, we have been recording for nearly three hours now and uh, we've covered a whole breadth of topics and this conversation uh i've had with you with the movies that we watched and the filmmakers that we loved and uh podcasting in general this has been a conversation that i've always wanted to have with you and i'm glad that you took time out of your schedule to uh do this with me and so i uh thank you from the bottom of my heart jason for making your podcast series for entertaining me and uh many others with uh with your show over the years and hopefully uh for the future oh thank you i mean it was my pleasure to be here and it's it's fun talking movies with you i had a oh yeah and i know that our schedules don't always align i mean you like like i said i work evenings you record on friday evenings so the that makes it hard to uh to yeah. get together but i'm sure we'll find a find a way like maybe one night i'll just take a 
personal day off for no other reason and <laughs> yeah, you and I, I joked, can uh, get together or something. I joke that, uh, well, if you just call in sick on the days I'm recording and everything's yeah. great. Yeah, but I know that's I mean, not very realistic. I, I've got, I've got uh, plenty of vacation time and I need to, to use it. Uh, or I'll lose it. So uh, we'll we'll burn that bridge when we get there. But anyway, if people want to follow you on social media or anything that you've created, how can they find you, Jstrom? Well, the main place is to go to etlandfill.com. And also, I'm the Jstrom on Twitter. And you can find links to, you know, Facebook and all that on etlandfill.com. Awesome. Um, uh, I can be found on Twitter at Avid Jam. If you want to send me feedback uh, through email, uh, my email account is avidacridjam at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, this uh, podcast is still really available, I believe, on Podbean, but it's also on Spotify and uh, Radio FM. And I'm trying to get it. Uh, I'm trying to get it uh, available on other podcast services as well. Uh, please like and subscribe, and any reviews at all, or I would be grateful for. And uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, and Jason, once again, thanks for joining me for this episode. And uh, anyway, this has been the Passing the Pending podcast, and you cannot appreciate what you have now without considering what you had before. And so began the journey north to safety, to our place in the sun. Among us, we found a new leader, the man who came from the sky, the gyro captain. And just as Papagallo had planned, we traveled far beyond the reach of men on machines. The juice, the precious juice, was hidden in the vehicles. As for me, I grew to manhood. In the fullness of time, I became the leader, the chief of the great northern tribe. And the road warrior? That was the last we ever saw of him. He lives now only in my memories.